Yep. Oh God! It, you, you know, know it's funny like... because I'm glad we're talking because I, I honestly mm-hmm. think that we could probably have an entire conversation in shorthand that the audience <laughs> just wouldn't understand at all. But both of us would be like, "I know exactly what you're talking about." <laughs> Pop culture affidavit episode fifteen. One savage evening. Welcome to episode 15 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at all things random in the world of popular culture. My name is Tom Panneries, and you are in for a treat tonight because this is a special episode of the show. No, I'm not going to get addicted to caffeine pills and then completely lose my shit on the night I'm supposed to sing a Pointer Sister song. I have my very first guest. The person with us tonight is someone who I've been listening to for a few years and is one of the best podcasters out there, so he's slumming it tonight. But I have to say that he's someone whom I've enjoyed listening to ever since I stumbled upon his Superman podcast, From Crisis to Crisis. Since then, I've followed him on Tales of the Justice Society of America, Back to the Bins, Comics Monthly Monday, Bailey's Batman podcast, and the show of his, which is my personal favorite, and I'm pretty much ripping off with this podcast, used from the long box. Uh, he has a definitive collection of Silver Surfer comic books. He has fought the cute and fuzzy bunnies, and he is the only person in Greendale to ski the K-12 from the glacier and lived. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Bailey. I'm glad you started mentioning my shows because you said you, you, you wanted to get like a podcaster that, that was good. So I was, I was confused. I was like, well, wow, do we have another guest coming on? No, thank you, sir. Uh, I appreciate all that. It's been... Uh, we have podcasted before on, on yes. Daily Batman Podcast, and uh, I have been fo- ever since you wrote into From Crisis to Crisis, and I followed the link back to Pop Culture Affidavit and slowly started to realize that you and I had the same childhood oh, uh, yes. in, in many, many ways. <laughs> it's just like you'd be talking about WPIX in, you know, out of New York, and I'm like, oh my god, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> so, Yeah, in fact... Um... This episode came about, or I thought of this episode, uh, because you had mentioned on one random show, I don't remember what it was, it might have been FCTC during the um, movies segment, like the the Meanwhile Back at the Daily Planet Mm -hmm. section, or it might have been a, a random episode of Views, but you mentioned how I got into college, and I seriously thought that maybe aside from my sister... Nobody had ever seen that movie. No, dude, like, me. I, that is like I, I watched the crap <laughs> out of that film because uh, HBO would air it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that and One Crazy Summer because I always had cable yeah. growing up. And my friend, one of my best friends, when I moved down to Georgia, Ryan loved that movie, and we he had it like a, a dubbed copy from like years ago. And I remember him bringing it over and us like watching it again and again and again and just loving the crap out of it but yeah i mean i I get the same thing 
you know, listening to this show and all that, where you talk about where you were and what you were doing, and it's just so similar because you're a year younger than me. So yeah. we're within the same, and, and most of the people I podcast are like either like three years younger or eight years older, and it's very rare that there's somebody right in the same age range that would remember things like the Monster Squad and you know, yeah, the Monster Squad, you know, watching, you know, and, and and getting the paper on Sunday and going through the TV guide for Saturday and Sunday because you were going to be home because you didn't have a life and. Mm-hmm seeing which movies on which channel you were going to watch. Yeah, we actually got TV Guide in itself, which by the end of the week was a frayed mess because my sister and I, you know, would, hey, can I have the TV Guide? And we'd chuck it across the room at each other because, you know, God forbid you actually get up and go hand your sister the TV Guide. And it was like a digest. <laughs> it was back then it was a digest mm-hmm. size. You know, it was the, so yeah, we, you know. By the end of the thing, the thing is like you know, it's just it's worn. There's there's a watermark on it because somebody set a glass on top of the cover. Yeah. We were I I treat my comics a lot better than that. Oh, it was just the thing that came in. Now we always uh, yeah. the local paper always had one. We mm-hmm. I can barely remember every my parents ever wanting to pay money for something they got in their multiple yeah. subscription. So yeah. I used to um, I used to do the same thing though because I mean I, I didn't have it's a running tired running gag by now but I didn't have cable until uh, the Christmas of '96 uh, because wow. my, my dad, we had gotten a new we had gotten a new either it was a VCR or a television and my dad accidentally pulled something out of the wall and my sister and I looked at him and said well I guess you have to get cable now. Which was total bullshit. It was just like you know, you all you had to do was buy like a little coax piece and whatever. But he just kind of looked and said, "Yeah, whatever. I'll, I'll go ahead and do it." And I was like, "You don't know how much shit I put up with through four years of high school because I didn't have MTV, mm-hmm. and I'd be like, or, or like I had to listen to hockey games on the radio, you know, like." And I'm like, "Now I get fucking cable." And um, I remember watching that weekend because we got like a free month of HBO from Cablevision or whatever, and I watched Batman Forever was on. It was the second time I had seen that movie, and I have not seen that movie since. Oh. Um, and and so I have to listen to... some people, that's to, a good thing. Yeah, I, it's in my Netflix queue because I have to listen to your um, your commentary. <laughs> I haven't... I've listened to Batman. I listened to Batman the other day uh, while I was home, and then I, I still have to listen to Returns and Forever, and then I have Stella and Don's Batman and Robin uh, where apparently I mentioned I at the end. Oh really? So. Yeah. So I have I have those, and I have, um, and I'm actually going to download your your Superman four one because I watched both of your Supermans, and I I listened to Hey Kids do uh, three, so I'm like, all right, four. So eventually I'll get around to those too. Um, but yeah, I, I listen. Uh, mine uh, WPIX was like the channel for movies because like WOR and 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 what was what's the Fox affiliate up in New York was WNYW. Yeah, something like movies. that. Yeah, they'd run movies, but they weren't as good. And PIX had like PIX for the longest time had the better sitcoms in the afternoon. Um, although WNYW would like they'd pick up Seinfeld and some other things, and they had um, they had the better movies. Like they would run they would run like the Twilight Zone marathons mm-hmm. on like New Year's Eve. They'd run the Godzilla thon. 
Yeah, the, the weird uh, thing was is where I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, we got channels from New York and Philly because we mm-hmm. were kind of equidistant, and, and the cable system we had was Service Electric, which apparently I've since learned was the first cable system in the country. Oh, really? And we had it, like, my entire... I don't remember a time when we didn't have cable. And the funny mm-hmm. thing about having the channels from Philly and New York is that you had a Fox channel in Philly and a Fox channel in New York. Yeah. And they would play different syndicated stuff. And you had Channel 9, and you had... There was, like, a Channel 11 in uh, New York, which was PIX, and there was another mm-hmm. one that was kind of like that in Philly that wasn't as good, but they would have different um, things that they would show. So you could... It was, like, really weird to plan out your night when you were going to watch TV because you would have to go to, like, Channel... The 5 out of New York to watch Facts of Life, and then <laughs> the 5 out of Philly to watch Night Court. And then back and forth and back and forth. It was very, very strange, especially when there were two Foxes for a long time. Because uh, you had the Fox out of New York and the Fox out of yeah. Philly. And it was just like, but they would show the same thing. So it was very, very strange. <laughs> we kind of have that down here right now where we get the Fox station out of Charlottesville. We also get the Fox station out of uh, D.C. So, and And the programming is slightly different, you know, because... But those newscasts are really different, too. They are, they are. <laughs> you know, I, I lived in I lived in Arlington for the first five, six years after graduating college, so I'm. it's kind of like, it's almost like, ooh, it, it, sometimes it feels like I never left, you know, like, so it's like, you know, I, I can watch the stuff out of D.C., and I'm like, oh, yeah, I know exactly where they're talking about. My in-laws live up in that area anyway, so... But, uh, it just, uh, to... to, to Finish off the intro. <laughs> we're, Derailed it already. Good going, We're going Mike. off topic. Um, just, just to, just to let the, the, the listeners, both of them, so who aren't us, so Andy and and uh, Chris Keith and maybe Sean Engel, <laughs> a couple of people who might actually be listening. Uh, we are. Uh, I mentioned how I got into college, and we are actually going to be doing something. Um, uh, that I don't think uh, it's been a long time since you've done something like this on a podcast before, which is not talk about comics. Yeah, it's very- <laughs> we're covering we're, tonight. We're going to be covering the movies of Savage Steve Holland. Uh, this is a name that, well, I think just about anyone who came of age in the '80s and early '90s might recognize. Yeah, or yeah, or at least they know Better Off Dead, which his first, fi- which is his first film. But uh, but there are three films. That's what we're going to be talking about. Um, Better Off Dead, One Crazy Summer, and How I Got Into College. Two of which uh, feature John Cusack uh, in a starring role, as well as um, Curtis Armstrong, who is, really is more famous for playing Booger in the Revenge of the Nerds movies. Yeah, uh, but then I, then I always. I forget that he had an ongoing role on Moonlighting. Yes. Uh, which, every time I see clips of it, I'm like, oh yeah, he was on that show. He is a lot older than, like, he was playing a character appropriate to the age he actually was when he was on Moonlighting. He's, he's like, it's like him in Revenge of the Nerds is like Judd Nelson of The Breakfast Club, where Judd Nelson of The Breakfast Club was like 25, and, and not to, 26. And not to jump ahead too much, but he looks younger in One Crazy Summer than he does in Revenge of the Nerds. 
Yeah. And I don't know how they did that, but he looks like an 18-year-old kid in that movie. He, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of how he looks in in Revenge of the Nerds. I think he's slightly chubbier and he's more clean shaven. Yeah, it's it's just really odd. So, but we'll yeah. get to that when we get to them. <clears throat> yeah, because he's also got a very brief cameo in How I Got into College. That is it's just my favorite one of the part most of hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the most. It's one of the my favorite parts of the movie. Um. Uh. We kind of already have started talking about it. Uh, you mentioned HBO. Um, you know, I wanted to do the, the the tried and true podcasting trope of of an origin story here. You know, how did how did you come about like knowing these movies? Because as as we were talking earlier, that you're probably one of the few people I know who actually has seen all three of them and likes all three <laughs> of them. Whereas most people. It's better off dead. Yes, and maybe people kind of remember one crazy summer, and you know, it kind of there's a things kind of drop off after that. Well, I was. It's a, mainly because of Cusack, but so what's your? Well, I was. What's a, your story? I was a lonely boy. Um, <laughs> it was very sad. Uh, when I was about ten years old, my family moved uh, from Mountaintop, Pennsylvania, which is near Wilkesbury, uh, which no one has any context for. Uh, it's near Scranton. I, there you go. I Awful. I have context. <laughs> I have context. No, no, I'm not. Sh- sh- I shit you not. My sister went to the University of Scranton. Okay. And the graduation was held at what was then the Wachovia or First Union. I can't remember the Wachovia or First Union Arena in Wilkesbury. Okay. So I've been to Wilkesbury once. So uh, Mountain Top <laughs> literally sits on top of Wilkesbury, on top of the mountain, hence the name okay. Mountain Top. And we moved to just outside of Allentown. And I went from suddenly having like a bunch of kids in the neighborhood that were my age to having the kids all being like five to six years younger than me. And mm-hmm. it, it, I just didn't have all that much to do in the summertime. Uh, we had cable. Now, if you're thinking that I stayed up late at night watching Cinemax... I, I will have to let you down easy because I never had Cinemax, so I never got to experience the glory that was Skinemax. Uh, back so you were probably Play- watching S- Scrambled Playboy channels? Sometimes, <laughs> yes. Because uh, sometimes you would get... Because it was something... A comedian actually brought it up. And it was, I forget who I was watching, but a comedian brought it up and I started laughing. And my wife's like, why are you laughing so hard? I go, because when I was 15, that was me. You know, that, that was you know where, where you knew where the Playboy channel was and sometimes the lines would be just... Not as scrambled yeah. as others, so you'd get like green boob, and uh, that was exciting. Uh, the The opening scene of American Pie <laughs> is, and I'm not going to get that graphic, but like, um, I was I went to see with a couple of friends of mine, and we were like, we were sold on the movie right from there because <laughs> we were howling at that scene because it's like that's cable. So, but H we had we had HBO, which mm-hmm. had a tendency to show a movie sixty times in a week. This is why I still remember Los Lobos kick your ass, Los Lobos kick your face, Los Lobos kick your balls into outer space from Short Circuit Two, because <laughs> I swear to God I watched that movie like a thousand times, and around like. 87, 88, one of those summers, they showed One Crazy Summer every three hours, I think it was. <laughs> so I would watch this film again and again, and I thought it was hilarious, because you had, like, the animation involved, you had John Cusack, you had, and it was just, I recognized even, you know, like, you know, like at the, at the dawn of being a teenager that this was really funny, and mm-hmm. then 
about 1990-91, they started showing how I got into college. I actually saw Better Off Dead much later. Uh, okay. uh, but my sisters loved it because they would constantly go around the house saying, I want my two dollars. Dollars. <laughs> so I it just it was the style of humor that Savage Steve Holland had that I, I can honestly say informed my opinion of what comedy should be. It's like if I if I had to say what, you know, if my style of if you want to call it humor, if you listen to any of my podcasts, it's a mixture of like Savage Steve Holland, uh the Zucker brothers and Dennis Miller. And it's just like you put all those in a blender, and that's what that's what I think of when I think of comedy. So maybe a little Monty Python in there because my parents scarred me at eight by showing me um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So oh really? I I got into I, I would watch Python. I think I was in junior high when I first saw Holy Grail because somebody had, or I might have been in high school. And it was probably a band kid because. Uh, yeah. Every bando that I ever knew in high school would sit there and quote Monty Python like at the drop mm-hmm. of a hat. So, but that was basically it. I mean, I you know I, I remember later on finding out that he did Eat the Cat, and I, I remember watching a couple episodes of that and kind of thinking it was funny. But those movies, you know, I just watched them so much that mm-hmm. they just became they became part of me in uh, only a way, you know, when you're a teenager and you don't have a social life and movies suddenly become that much more important to you because you have nothing else to do. So you, you watch, it's like why I've watched The Great Outdoors a thousand times. It's because I HBO. Love that nope. movie. How can you not love that movie? <laughs> the, I saw that in the theater. Wow. You got me beat. <laughs> I, I saw that in the theater. The scene where he shoots that bear at the end. Like I can picture to my head the the hair coming off the ass of that bear. <laughs> I have to go back and watch that movie again. Uh, yeah, I have a slightly different origin story, if you will, because like I was just saying, I didn't have cable, and I actually saw it on WPIX, or I saw it Better Off Dead first, and uh, on a on a complete fluke too, because I had been, I mean, like I guess I was out playing hockey or something with my friends. This must have been like my freshman year of high school or so, or I think it was like the summer before. And I came home because I had to be home by dinner. And so I get home early, and dinner's not ready. So I go into the den and I watch TV, and I'm flipping around. And I came across the scene in the math class, which the teacher is played by Vincent... I'm going to mispronounce it. Schiavelli. Schiavelli, who at that time I knew from Ghost, because he was the, the ghost on the train, who was essentially the, the teacher to Patrick Swayze. And then years later, I would see he was also Doctor uh, Doctor Vargas in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Um, but I see that scene, and it's this bizarre scene where, like, he's like explaining this math equation, and they're all like in rapt attention, and they start applauding and laughing at the end. And then he said, "I want to see your homework." And like one kid opens up a briefcase, and there's like a dot matrix printer, and he's printing yeah. out the homework. <laughs> and then Cusack pulls a piece of paper out of his pocket; it's stuck together with gum, and it says, "Do homework on it." And I watched—I caught about maybe five, ten minutes of the film, right up to one of my favorite lines in the entire movie, spoken by. Um, Stephen Williams, who played Captain Fuller on 21 Jump Street, because so, I knew who he was by then, because I, I have the first three seasons of Jump Street on DVD. 
Uh, probably shouldn't be admitting that, but um, he says, <laughs> "Yeah." So, so Cusack falls off a br- gets accidentally knocked off a bridge into a garbage truck, and and Williams says, "Now that's a damn shame when folks be throwing away a perfectly good white boy like that." <laughs> and I think they went to commercial. I had to go to dinner and or, or you know go in and eat dinner, and so I went back through the TV guide. I found out the name of the movie. They reran it about a week or two later on a Friday night, and you know. Since uh, you know, I had no life in high school. <laughs> I sat down and watched Better Off Dead. I think my sister was with me, and we watched that. And I knew who John Cusack was because I'd seen Stand by Me because he plays Denny, yeah. the the dead brother in Stand by Me. I didn't know his name. I was like, it's that guy because John Cusack's he's a very like recognizable person. Mm-hmm. He just there's something about the way he looks. Like I know that guy, and I had seen. Believe it or not, I had seen Eight Men Out because he plays... Um, he doesn't play Shoeless Joe, but he plays one of the other uh, White Sox. And I had also seen The Journey of Natty Gan. Oh, God. <laughs> which was one of those movies that I think my parents rented on a family movie night. I was about eight years old that had just come out of video, and I cried like a little baby at the end of that movie. I, I don't remember why... I know why I remember this, but I remember I was bawling my eyes out at the end of the movie for whatever reason. I don't know. Eight years old. <laughs> I haven't seen it since, but yeah. So so then, uh, somewhere along the line, they also ran One Crazy Summer. A movie I had heard of, because I remember seeing the poster on the wall of the video store for years, but I didn't know what it was about. And I saw the name Savage Steve Holland, and I recognized it from Better Off Dead. So I went back and I dubbed, because I had two VCRs in the house, I rented both of them. And I dubbed them. And then um, at one point, from there, kind of got on this teen movie kick that I really haven't gotten off of. <laughs> but uh, I, I went on this quest like during most of high school where I went and rented all the, the John Hughes movies and Say Anything and The Sure Thing, you know, and what have you, and Fast Times Ridgemont High. And, and, I, had, I, ha- and I had actually seen how I got into college already, but I didn't know it was a Savage Steve Holland movie because... Uh, there's one thing you gotta know. My father will rent anything. Okay. All right. My my dad my dad is two the, one of the my dad is two people in the video store combined. My dad is the guy who will rent anything, and he is the guy when you are standing there trying to figure out what to watch, he will point out like four movies. Like he'll chat you up. Um, in fact, I've got this. <laughs> um, so he had rented it, and I had watched it with him, but I right around the time it came out on video and when I went back and watched it I saw it was Savage Steve Holland and so I kind of made the connection there but so I technically had seen how I got into college first even though I didn't realize it my dad has this great story um, I have a copy of Masters of the Universe the Dolph Lundgren movie on VHS he and I are the only two people in the world who like this movie and and when I was in college my friends and I were on an 80s kick and we were talking about you know typical 80s stuff and I said have you guys ever seen because we've been watching Rocky 4 a lot my roommate was from Philly um, and we used to listen to the Rocky soundtrack before softball games anyway um, I said have you seen He-Man the Masters of the Universe with, with um, Ivan Drago <laughs> and they were like no and I, so I asked my dad um, you know Christmas is coming up do you think you could track down a copy of this movie he was like oh, he was all for it so he he can't find it. It's it's out of print at this point. And he goes to the video store, and there and he's like, "Do you have an extra copy? You might want to sell off because they would do that. They'd sell you know the the previously 
viewed bin, five bucks a movie. It was like, no, we only have one copy, but the guy at the store was like, I'm pretty sure nobody's rented this thing. <laughs> so he goes into the computer, and he says, no, 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 this movie hasn't been rented since 1992, and it's 98 at this point. And then he goes, oh, Wayne, you were the last person to rent this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a video store copy of Masters of the University in my cat. You know that was originally supposed to be a New Gods film, right? Yes, I read about that. And for some reason, um, they, were, they were making a sequel, and it, it they had started it up, the budget fell through or whatever, and the leftover sets and some of the props became some of the stuff used in the John claude Van Damme movie Cyborg. Yep. And it's very often mislabeled as Masters of the Universe 2, the Cyborg. It's sometimes when it would show up on TV, like in listings. Wow, that, I remember hearing that once and never again. Yeah. So thank you for reminding me. Yeah, it's Cyborg's an underrated movie. Actually, it's badly dubbed. It's there's like all for sorts the of only audio person problems. Person to ever it. say those words together. It's yeah. not bad. It's not bad. Trust me. <laughs> it's it's no um you know it's no double impact. <laughs> double impact. The movie my mom walked in on when the sex scene was playing. Not as uncomfortable as your uncle deciding after your grandfather, his father's funeral, that the movie that we need to all watch as a family is, um, what is that movie called? It had Viggo Mortensen in it. Oh, A History of Violence? Yes. <laughs> that's a good movie. It's a good movie, but you don't want to but watch that's the, the, the scene on the stairs with your dad sitting next to you, even when you're like 30 years old. I mean, it's just, some things just never get washed away. <laughs> It's like I got The Exorcist for Christmas one day, and I'm like, hey, you want to watch The Exorcist? And my dad's like, yeah. And my mom's like, we're not watching The Exorcist on Christmas Day. I was like, what? <laughs> this is my dad and I had going to the movies for years. That was our, you know, because I didn't, he, he bodybuilds and what have you. And um, and that was basically how we bonded for years and years. We would go, if Van Damme was in it, if Seagal was in it, if Schwarzenegger was in it, it we'd go. And so I've seen in the theater marked for death and out for justice and kickboxer and you know some of these other really really just shit movies but yes, but they you know, were but i watched the crap out of them when i was 14 yeah. years old <laughs> yeah and i'm sure you had like other friends like my friend jeremy was my horror movie friend we'd go see we saw oh, some random shitty horror movies and my friend harris who i actually used he and i used to write letters into the titans comics um, together, uh, he was he was my. We would go see you know Star Trek, and Star Wars, and the Batman movies, and I think we saw the first two Lord of the Rings movies when they came out before we both moved. You know, before we were both not available. He had moved off to Boston, and I was down to DC. We weren't able to get together for Return of the King, but you know, so I dragged my wife to all of the Star Wars movies at one point or another. So. <laughs> She was relatively unfamiliar with with Star Wars when we started dating. Wow! And uh, she had seen the first. She had seen she had seen Star Wars, but she hadn't seen like Empire or Jedi. And it was right around the time. When... How do you get away with not doing that? It's, you know, it's very she's strange. a girl. That doesn't matter. Star Wars is transcendent. It... <laughs> We're the same age, so I just I don't think it was on her radar as a kid. 
you know, she's an only child, so it wasn't like she had, you know, like my sister's seen all the Star Wars movies and stuff. Because of you, movie. yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so, so, but to her credit, her her favorite thing as a kid was like Jem. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Jem is excitement. <laughs> yeah, it's truly, truly outrageous. In fact, I think one day she's actually going to either guest or she's going to write a guest piece about about that because she was we were talking about it the other day and what have you. You should totally have your wife on the show. I should have actually. <laughs> Love's Better Off Dead. It was one of the movies that we you know we throw in every once in a while when because um, she eventually bought me a legitimate VHS copy and then and then uh, my sister got it for me on DVD when it came out and and uh, all these movies are available on DVD. None of them have special features. Which is frustrating because One Crazy Summer had a commentary. It, it did on one of the releases. Yeah, I was listening to it. Oh, a bit. It was very that's cool. It's it's a commentary with Savage Steve Holland, Bobcat Goldthwait, and Joel Murray. Huh. I'll have to t- see. I haven't actually. I I think I watched it once on DVD, but I didn't you know access any of the features. So, and I watched like my copy, my dubbed copy. I might actually track these down. They're pretty inexpensive on DVD anyway. Um. So, Savage Steve Holland, uh, kind of the, not exactly John Hughes, <laughs> when, there's going to be no tribute to this guy at the Oscars when, when he passes, but um, just a little background on the director, because what I thought we'd, I'd do is give a little background on him, I will, we'll take a break, and then we'll start with the movies with Better Off Dead, but he was born in 1960 in, I think, Connecticut, I know he at least went to junior high school in Connecticut, at least that's what his internet movie database bio says and uh, he attended college in the early 80s at the California Institute of the Arts where he studied animation and if you've seen Better Off Dead in One Crazy Summer like we have it totally makes sense Yes. Um, animation is what got him his break in show business because his first major credit is that he created and animated the Whammy yes. from the game show Press Your Luck. And if you're unfamiliar with the... I can tell that you've, you've watched as much Press Your Luck as I have. Oh, yeah, the yeah. Game Show Network has been has rerun it every once in a while. Big money, big money, um, no whammy, no whammy, stop! Exactly. And and so if you're unfamiliar with this game show, is basically they, they'd put the... The person would have a plunger and there'd be a big board of lights going around and they'd say, you know, big... Big money, big money, big money, no whammies, and they'd hit the plunger and it would stop on a space and they'd win a hundred dollars or a free spin or you know a, a a cruise or something. And the whammies, which were these little animated monsters, were the bankrupt spaces. But when they hit it, you'd hear this crazy noise and this animated cartoon whammy would come across the screen and do the moonwalk or walk like an Egyptian or whatever was popular at the eighty in the eighties at the time. And, uh, and so that was his first credit. And then he would go on to direct Better Off Dead, One Crazy Summer. He would have his first foray into television with The New Adventures of Beans Baxter for uh, the Fledgling Fox Network in uh, about 87, 88. And that would last all of 12 episodes. Um, I tried to find it online and couldn't. I found a trailer for it or a commercial for it in a in like a block of... You know how some people just upload blocks of commercials yeah. from the eighties. There was one for that, but other than that, it's it's one of the late eighties and early nineties. For some reason, is like a black hole where the internet's concerned. In some cases, like you can find stuff from the late seventies and the early eighties and stuff, but some like random TV shows and stuff you figure that nobody would give a crap if the copyright was violated, 
or or whatever. It's just it's like nobody has any of this. Well, Not especially since want... it's an early Fox show, and there yeah. was just so much on there. I mean, I, I'm one of five people that remembers the show that Matthew Perry was on, where he this man dies, and St. Peter mm-hmm. has him go back in time to live with his younger self and his mother to right all the wrongs of his uh, of his childhood. Oh, and, and I just, and, and I I watched it every week <laughs> until it they, wasn't they... there anymore. And they repurposed it, or in the se- if it was the second season or if it was it was the second series, season where they retooled it. It was called Boys Will Be Boys mm-hmm. in the second one because I watched that, and he was living with a roommate who was oh, it was called like Gooch or something. I want to say Gooch, but I think that was the bully in Different Strokes. But he was a very he was very much a it was almost like that was um, the bully in Different Strokes. Yeah, <laughs> but it was but this this roommate character was almost as if you could picture this. It was almost as if Richard Grieco was playing Joey Tribbiani. Yeah, and so yes, and whenever was. I and whenever I would see Matthew Perry, so that's why I recognized Matthew Perry on the first season of Friends. Because like aside from that, and aside from a few other um, random, you know guest starring things on like 90210 or whatever I, I knew and oh and uh, the Amy Dolan's movie she's out of control I'm telling you I've seen every fucking movie from the 80s I, I was about to say you actually this is this is one of the areas where sometimes I will just have to bow Tony, to your superior wisdom on these to, things because there are Tony Danza yeah and Amy Dolan's and, and Wallace Shawn playing this radio psycho- psychotherapist it's not a terrible movie believe it or not. That's not a selling point. <laughs> it's not. It's actually, it's a lot better. It is, as far as, as far as movies with Tony Danza goes, they're, they're pretty good. But then again, this is a man, <laughs> this is a man whose credits include the garbage picking, field goal kicking, Philadelphia phenomenon. So. <laughs> On paper, it, it looks like a good title. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So he does Beans Baxter. Uh, he would do an Encyclopedia Brown series as well, and he would end up doing Eek the Cat, the animated. Um... Encyclopedia Brown was rather good, by the way. Yeah, I, I never saw that, and I caught. I knew he. I knew he had done Eek the Cat because I caught an episode. The animation looked very similar to One Crazy Summer, and I recognized Curtis Armstrong's voice, and so I stuck around for the credits. And saw Savage Steve Holland. So, um, but that was like '92. And between One Crazy Summer and 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 some of his forays into television in the early '90s, he had done How I Got Into College. So, How I Got Into College would be his last theatrical feature. And since then, though, he's had an enormous number of television credits, uh, including directing TV movies and shows that are geared toward the tween market. Shows like Lizzie McGuire, Zoe 101, and Big Time Rush. Um, Lisa All McGuire was the, by Dan Schneider. Dan Schneider, who was in his in he's in uh, Better Off Dead. He has a major role in Better Off Dead. He has a blink if you'll miss a cameo in How I Got into College. Yes. He's not in One Crazy Summer. Dan, uh, Dennis Schneider is best known as uh, Dan Schneider is best known as Dennis Blunden mm-hmm. from Head of the Class, uh, the Howard Hessman show that um, that I remember watching quite a bit of in. Oh yeah. When I was in high school, I actually thought that was a fun, fun show. Even when um, Bill, Billy Connolly took over as the yes, teacher. yes. Uh, sadly, I know what Big Time Rush is because my son watches like SpongeBob, and there are commercials for Big Time Rush because it's a Nickelodeon boy band show. Yes, yes, <sighs> it is. So I, 
who came out of Zoe one oh one? I was one of the uh I know the the younger uh what's her name? Spears uh daughter. Oh oh Jamie Lynn. Jamie Lynn Spears Jamie Lynn was Spears, in that. that was her. I, I think Somebody else like big was in that too, and I'm trying yeah. to remember who it was. Victoria Justice came okay. out of there and she would eventually she, go on to do to Vic- uh Victorious, which was actually yes. a rather uh, rather good. My wife watches a lot of these shows, so it's I the know, only reason I know what they are. No, is, I uh, know the shows from the ads from watching cartoons on the channel. So because it's... believe me, that a thirty-seven-year-old man does not want to admit that he watches like iCarly and Drake and Josh and Victorious and all that, unless he wants Benson and Stabler to come and like yeah. kick down his door and take him away. So, Mike, I owned a Grassy High on DVD. Yes, but you grew up with that. That's different. That's true. I've I've seen the first few seasons of the of the more recent iteration, but I kind of fell off after that. I was like, I, you know, th- then I felt I felt a little creepy, um, mainly because I was trying to watch it for the adult. I'm not kidding. I was like, ooh, this is like Stacy Mystician, who played Caitlin on Degrassi, was my first crush. So, so when she was in the episodes of the show, I was like, all right, I'll watch these. <laughs> so. There you go. Um, Eek the cat, uh, big time rush, and um, and that's pretty much it for him. So he's he hasn't made any real feature theatrical features since he's made tons of TV movies, direct to video movies, like sequels to movies like Legally Blonde and what have you. I think he directed Legally Blondes and, and things like that. So um, somebody who's kind of not fallen off the map completely. It's not like one of those where did the, whatever happened to this guy and like you know he ends up you know I don't know building houses out in you know Van Missouri or or so, yeah <laughs> um, he he's still working in the business like a lot like quite a number of people from the eighties believe it or not um, you know there there are some random people uh, Emilio Estevez believe it or not because. Um, Chris Keith had emailed about him and about Samuel's Fire a couple of episodes ago, and I had looked up Emilio Estevez's profile, and he's just gotten steady directing work, and Fred Savage and some other people. It's just like they go into... The other you know, side of the camera, yeah. The other side. And, and on television, which is basically... It's it's steady work, you know? Yeah. It's kind of a workhorse type of thing I, where you're... I mean, the leather you know. jacket guy from, say, uh, from Head of the Class... Uh, owns the production company that would go on to do Smallville. So yeah, because he did. Um, he made got his big break in producing with like Varsity Blues mm-hmm. and what have you. So it's um, the the only the only person I have seen stretch out two decades of teen movies was Seth Green because he's in he's in Can't Buy Me Love, Pump Up the Volume, and then he's in like Can't Hardly Wait and um, a. a crap ton of movies in the in the late 90s and what have you so he's the bridge <laughs> the generation <laughs> bridge it's a very short bridge but it's a bridge yes. all right so um let's take a quick break and when we get back we'll we'll start off with the movies we'll go chronologically with with better off dead <laughs> Don't 
In the decade of the 1930s, even the great city of Cleveland, Ohio, was not spared of the ravages of the Great Depression. In a time of fear and confusion, a character emerged that would entertain and inspire millions of children and adults alike. He began not as flesh and blood, but as a simple line drawing. His comic book adventures thrilled millions around the world. The magic of radio gave to his name a breathless signature and sound. Then with television came a whole new generation to idolize his exploits. In the 70s, the world believed a man could fly. In the 80s, he was reborn in the comics, and the 90s saw his death, rebirth, and marriage. In the 21st century, he returned to the big screen and saw his origin changed and retold on several occasions. Through the decades, he has gone by many names. The Man of Tomorrow. The Last Son of Krypton. The Man of Steel. His strength is incredible. His name is legendary. His battle is never ending. Faster than a speedy bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. My name is Michael Bailey, and I host an internet radio show called Views from the Long Box. Superman is my favorite character of all time, and in 2013, he is turning 75. Because of this, a large portion of the episodes this year will be about the Man of Steel in a series I'm calling Superman, Superman at 75, the celebration, celebration of a legend. I'm going to mark Superman's birthday in fine style by examining all aspects of the character's history, from the comics, to the movies, to the television series, and beyond, both alone and with the best and brightest of the podcasting world. It may not be every episode, but the bulk of views in 2013 will be all about the Man of Steel. He is the first and greatest superhero of them all, and he deserves no less. Superman at 75. The Celebration of a Legend. A series within a series, and the biggest birthday card a fan can give his favorite hero, only at Views from the Long Box. Views from the Long Box is a Fortress of Bailey-Tude production. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and for this series, over at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Does it ever feel like everyone's got more going than you do? Oops. That everyone is smart. So you're Al Myers, kid? Yes, I am. You look pretty stupid to me. Thank you. You say the best skier in town just ran off with your girlfriend? Even your younger brother does better than you do? <laughs> and that nobody even cares? That broke up with me. Oh, that's nice. Well, you might be right. Oh! But remember one thing. 
I haven't even been to New York City. Nobody was ever better off dead. The truth is, I could outski you any day of the week. Oh, really? Yeah, you want a race, I'll take you on any day, sucker. Go that way, really fast. If something gets in your way, turn. All you need is guts. All right! Now turn! I'm gonna race, I'm gonna lose, and I'm gonna die in that order. Go! And you'll never doubt yourself again. He's skiing on one ski! Better off dead. And that's a real shame when folks be throwing away a perfectly good white boy like that. An abnormal look at a normal teenager. And we're back. In case anybody out there listening <laughs> doesn't know, Savage Steve Holland, um, we were just I was just talking about his career prior to, you know, um at the moment where it's not, you know, he's not he's not Quentin Tarantino or, or anybody like that. Um it's because his movies didn't do well at the box office, um, which it's kind of a shame, at least with with uh with Better Off Dead and <clears throat> One Crazy Summer is a little bit uneven. Um, and they really are, especially Better Off Dead, is is a, is a cult film. Yes. Um, not in the way that, like, Rocky Horror is. No, but it's one of those films that when you were when we were teenagers especially, it was what you would rent a lot uh, from mm-hmm. the video store. When you were getting together with your friends, when you finally had friends, and you were actually yep. getting together and somebody had a VCR... You would rent these types of movies over and over and over again just because you thought they were funny. Yeah, yeah. In the same way you'd rent, I mean, because they were just they were just movies you knew. Yeah, and and it was like that, and, and Caddyshack, and Airplane, and um, Real Genius, and Real Genius. Uh, I almost said The Man with One Red Shoe, but I think I only saw that once, so I really yeah. can't um, throw that out there as a, as a good fer- date for the. Ferris Bueller, even though Ferris Bueller, Ferris Bueller made something like seventy million dollars or something, mm-hmm. but Ferris Bueller was one of those movies too. Again, Absolutely, just mo- movies you'd have and you'd throw in. So, uh, so by the time we all got to college, or by the time we all got out of high school, whatever you, and you're in the mid nineties, it made total sense that like my roommates and I went on a Pulp Fiction binge watch where we watched that movie like every night for two weeks, mm-hmm. or, or I find like I had seen Clerks that previous summer. And gotten a hand on, hand, my hands on a copy of it, and my roommates hadn't seen it. And I, I said, "You, Mallrats had just come out." I was like, "You guys have to see this movie." We watched this movie, and it was like, you know, I, I came in very early on the Kevin Smith thing and left right after Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which was probably yeah, it was it, it was similar with a, with a movie that uh, I saw at this in like a little art house theater in Allentown called uh, Fear of a Black Hat which was a mockumentary of hip hop culture in the mid 90s mm-hmm. uh, I, I, like, I liken it to like Spinal Tap but for hip hop okay. and the dude from Larry B. Scott from Revenge of the Nerds, the Nerds. and the Karate Kid um, mm-hmm. plays like the hardcore gangster guy <laughs> and it's like this grip, and it's just like one of those movies that you watch again and again and again because it's just it it it, it doesn't really have like the memorable lines of like Better Off Dead or One Crazy Summer, and I'll, and I'll get to yeah. like a memorable line from One Crazy Summer that when I find, rewatched it recently, like a light bulb went off in my head about something, but <laughs> but it's just like you know, 
Pulp Fiction, uh, Natural Born Killers in the nineties, mm-hmm. and that kind of Rest stuff. Rest Dogs. Yeah, yeah, this was this. Better Off Dead was like the ancestor to that type of thing. Yeah, because you just you, you had it and it was just there, and you watched and it was on. And uh, the movie itself, just a little business behind it, it made ten point three million. It was the eighty second highest grossing movie of nineteen eighty five. Which made slightly less than American Ninja, uh, but it beat out the C. Thomas Howell classic Secret Admirer, um, which in which Kelly Preston takes off her top, but Lori Loughlin is like ten times hotter for some reason. If I wanted to Again. see that, I'd see uh, Mischief. So yes, uh, it's by the way, Secret Admirer is not C. Thomas Howell's best movie. C. Thomas Howell's best movie is uh, Side Out. <laughs> Uh, I, I was going to say uh, the movie where he, uh, Soul Man, would be his best movie. Oh, God. <laughs> Side out. I actually, um, in a future episode of In Country, there's a bullpen bulletin about how Kate, how about New World buying Marvel? Mm hmm. And they mentioned that New World <laughs> was behind the hit Soul Man. <laughs> And I know somewhere. I don't think. I don't think it's in this one. I think it's in a couple of episodes coming down the line. But I'm pretty sure I lose it in the middle of it. You have because I, I. I don't think I could keep it together. He took tannic pills to pretend he was black to get a scholarship. Yeah. This is not yeah. a good movie. Yeah, but Ray of course, Strong was in that movie. I know. No wonder he would go on to do Side Out. I mean, that's a movie where somebody basically saw the the. Um, the, the volleyball scene in Top Gun and said, I want that to be 90 minutes to the point where they, to the point where they use a remix version of playing with the boys during a volleyball montage because I, and I happen to have the remix version because I have the Top Gun soundtrack on CD, which I got out of a bargain bin years ago because I used to have it on tape and they have that remix version on it. Your, uh, your dedication to that cause is, uh, yeah. I think I got it because that you, you, it was it was serious like five bucks, and you lost that love and feeling was on it, and I was like, and the Top Gun anthem, or, yeah, I don't know. My musical taste is questionable at best. Anyway, um, a very quick summary of the plot. Uh, Better Off Dead is the story of Lane Meyer, who is going out with a girl named Beth, uh, who dumps him for the captain of his high school ski team, a guy named Roy Stalin. Uh, Lane spends half the movie trying to kill himself over this girl. And then after he becomes friends with Monique, the French foreign exchange student who's staying across the street with his weird neighbor, Ricky Smith, uh, he spends the second half of the movie kind of overcoming his problems, which mainly leads to a ski race with Roy at the end that Lane wins. And of course, um, could get Beth back at the end of the movie, but goes off with Monique and it ends with them kissing on home plate at Dodger Stadium. Um, and that's an oversimplification of a movie that has a lot going for it because you can't summarize the movie and actually make it appeal to somebody because, like I said a little earlier, um, <laughs> any nobody remembers the plot to the movie except for Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Yeah. Uh, because you start talking to somebody about this movie and they'll say those five magic words. I want my $2. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, like, where do we begin? Do we begin with the fact that, like, in the opening scene, um, his mother's like, I wouldn't say he's obsessed, and he opens up his closet, and every single hanger has her picture on it. 
this is where the humor of Savage Steve Holland really starts to shine through because, oddly enough, as much as I like Better Off Dead, of the three films, when you look at them as films, it's mm-hmm. the most, I don't want to say amateurist, but it's where he's finding his feet. Yeah, because a lot of the gags are fantastic. Like you know, all you know, like you you know, he's he's in love with Beth, and he's got the posters and all the the things. Mm-hmm. But also the fact that in that same scene, the father, played by future Martian Manhunter uh, Dave Dagen Styers, uh, goes to the goes to the the cupboard to get cereal, and his son has clicked his younger son has clipped out. Like all of the things, except he didn't wait till the cereal was done or took the bag out before. Yeah. So every time he takes the cereal, the cereal just starts spilling on the floor. And David Ogden is being a brilliant comedic actor. Oh, he's he he's so good in this movie. Just sells like the frustrations that he like, like he does it. He does it again. He knows the third one's going to do it, but he pulls it anyway. I mean, and, and just the, the the crap that his mother is constantly cooking to from from like you know like what. He, look, it's like pudding, like green pudding with raisins in it, to one scene where there's like tentacles, like sticking out of the pot and moving. I mean, Do you notice in that scene she puts one in and then it starts moving? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's just. I know it's bacon. What have you done to it? <laughs> you said you didn't like all the grease from fried bacon, so, so I, I boiled it. I mean, it's just it's the little things like that 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 are just like classic savage steve holland yes but unfortunately they're also part you know uh, uh, it's always good to get the bad stuff out of the way first Mm -hmm. the problems i have with better (laughs) off dead is that the plot will come to a screeching halt for absolutely no reason there's a scene where he gets a job at uh, a hamburger place and this scene really has nothing to do with the film the hamburger guy is porky Yes, uh, which which when I was watching it recently, I was just like, oh, God, I love Porky's. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just because it had naked women in it, but because it's actually yeah. a really funny movie. Uh, mm-hmm. But but we, we take, like, you know, a couple minutes out of the film so that we can do claymation hamburger dancing and, like, this whole Frankenstein riff. And I'm like, this is funny, but it just... It just didn't feel organic to the movie itself. Yeah. It felt like I have all these ideas for a movie. I'm going to have this little plot to string it by. But at the same time, the rest of the film is so brilliant mm-hmm. in its in, you know in its comedy that you really can't you can't fault it for it. It's just like it's a, it's a first yeah. time filmmaker you know finding his legs basically. Yeah, and and really just having a lot of fun with his sort of very absurd, very weird sense of humor. Um, it also suffers from the problem that uh, a lot of 80s comedies suffer from, which is that it's somewhere along the line, you have to solve the problem. Yes. Like, you have the plot. So the plot has to get going, and that's a lot of times where the jokes actually stop. And it's the last, maybe, like that, that from around the moment where she shows up and she's fixing the car Mm -hmm. to the race. Yeah. Because it's like, because I like the scene where they fix the car together. I think it's kind of, it's cute. Diane Franklin is insanely cute in this movie and and that really works. Oh my God. And I, (laughs) and I, I get the fact that she knows how to ski, but it's, it's almost like she becomes, and she's kind of the person who's going to kind of pull him out of his funk anyway. But it's like, the car fixing montage, the dinner at the 
the burger place he'd been fired from, but he he never turned in the keys. Yeah. From, and then which, you know, you can no prize that, and then and then the skiing montage, and it's like, you know. doesn't seem to become Savage Steve Holland's movie again until um, the paper boy rolls up on ski, on a with skis attached to his bike and wearing a helmet screaming I want my two dollars one more time and chases them down the K-12 because <laughs> then it's at least there's one little funny bit at the end there but, but yeah it, it kind of it doesn't fall apart completely but it's just like you can kind of ignore a good chunk of the last quarter of the movie. Well, and it's just, he, he puts like a montage in every single movie he does. And it's not a bad mm-hmm. thing necessarily. And it's really funny that when I watch, when I rewatch Better Off Dead and, and One Crazy Summer, uh, I wanted to rewatch How I Got Into College and Screw mm-hmm. You Netflix. Um, <laughs> but th- at their heart, they're comedies, but they're also kind of sports movies, which is really weird. Like he, like he's got like all these ideas in his head of what he yeah. wants to do, and it doesn't come out as cohesively as it can. However, as I said, the characters in these movies are really what sells it. I mean, you, what you have is kind of a formula. You have the main character that is in love or has romantic problems somehow. That mm-hmm. main character has a best friend. The best friend is weird somehow. Whether you're Curtis Armstrong in this film, who is constantly trying to do drugs, but he can't because there's no drugs in the small town that they live in. Mountain is pure snow! And you you see that again in One Crazy Summer, and then especially again in How I Got Into College. Yes. So, So you have that. You have kind of his friends that kind of surround him a little bit. And then you have the bad guy, who's usually played by a douchebag, except, and this is why How I Got Into College was actually, I think, the best of the three films, you had two different versions of that in How I Got Into College, which I yeah. rather liked. But in this one, you have, you know, the, the God, why can't I remember his name? Roy? Roy Stalin. Roy Stalin's played by a dude that I think is the son of William Dozier from the Batman TV show, but I can't, I have not found any evidence of this. I tried to confirm it too, but I wasn't able to find it either. So, but I want it to be him, you know? Yeah. Because <laughs> then you can connect it to a superhero film again. But, but the th- you know, he steals sort of. Beth was going to break up with him no matter what. So it's mm-hmm. just a. Uh, I, I think that's also one of the things that bugs me about this film is that Beth really 
she, she, you didn't like her at all, anyways. I mean, no. you know, she, she was kind of, you know, in all the flashbacks, she's this horrendous bitch. Yeah. And you're wondering why he's with her, and then you're like, why is she with him? She, she uh, this is the second movie that Amanda Weiss plays a girl who breaks up with the main character of the movie because she plays Judge Reinhold's girlfriend in Fast Times yes, Ridge on High and breaks up with him the day he gets fired from All-American Burger. <laughs> or the day but after it, he gets fired from All-American Burger. But then you have, like, the the dynamic between John Cusack and Curtis Armstrong uh, yeah. as, as Charles. And, 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 and Charles has... One of my single favorite take down the bully moments ever is they go to the dance and Roy comes up and he tries to be a douchebag and Curtis Armstrong just starts laughing at him. He says you gotta shave her a little closer before you kiss her goodnight. And he, the whole night he keeps coming and up to him. And he just keeps coming up to him. And it's just like, that is the greatest thing you can do to a bully ever. Yeah. Because you're like, you're laughing and then you, you, you he hopefully solely realizes that he you're making fun of him at the same time. Yeah. Curtis Armstrong also has the best line in the movie. Which Lane, is? I've been going to this high school for seven and a half years. <laughs> I'm no dummy. That and go down the hill very fast. If something gets in your way, move. But then you also have, like, yeah. the, the running gags. Like, you know, everybody comes up to Lane uh, and wants to ask Beth out, including yeah. the, the teacher played by Vincent Chiavelli mm-hmm. uh, in the scene that we mentioned before. Barney yeah. Rubble. Rubble. On the TV. And one of those moments where it's just, <laughs> I laugh every single time I see it because that is yeah. just, like, one of the most surreal things ever. I mean, it's just, like, it, it's just amazing. And then you have this other running gag that only makes sense in terms of the fact that Lane wants to rebuild this car is you've got these two Asian guys, <laughs> one of which doesn't speak English and the other of which learned to speak English by watching Wide World of Sports. And and is and is played by Chosen from Karate yes! Kid 2. Yes! I was just like, what the hell is he doing in this movie? He should be kicking Lane's ass. Not, not wanting and, to race him. But there's the gag that the, that the car is a piece of crap. It's the station wagon. Yeah. And, and the Foley artist deserves some credit here because anytime you hear the car pull up to a light, you hear the muffler dragging behind mm-hmm. it through the entire movie. And and on two occasions, he hits the manager of the pig burger, Porky, and he's got a line, I'm going to activate your dental plan, which is a great line. <laughs> And then you have like bits like him like listening, and every station on the radio is playing a love song, and he eventually oh throws the radio out the door yes. and uh, out of the car. And it's just like these are what sticks in your head about this film. You you eventually forget kind of the shortcomings and really focus on the fact mm-hmm. that there is this kind of hot French exchange student across the street that the mother got simply to get her son laid. I know. It's never explicitly said. <laughs> the international language yeah but it's just and and dan yeah. schneider deserves a freaking academy award for this he, film he practically steals the movie because he undersells his part to the point where it's comedic genius yeah. I, I mean it's a, it's like you see them in in the house together and 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 he walks by her room and just sticks his head down and walks away and you kind of feel bad for him until you find out he's a scumbag and he gets, and then, and then of course there's a dance because it's an 80s high school movie. Yeah, but <laughs> that scene, man. 
where you think because he's dancing around and he's flinging and and uh, apparently like it wasn't completely improvised but they kind of went with it and she told him to like spin her around as hard as he could you know like make it look ridiculous and you think he's gonna just he he gives his glasses and jacket to somebody and you think he's gonna be like you know this is gonna be the fat guy doing the impossible dance yes and he just face plants and then they just put the jacket and glasses on him and they just start dancing around him like it well eg daily aka tommy pickles tommy is pickles singing in the background and oh my god was she unbelievably hot this film um mm. But it's just, yes, it's a film full of set pieces, but they're, they're, it's such a fun movie, and John Cusack being such a fantastic actor in and of himself, mm-hmm. you know, he, he kind of sells this guy that is constant. I mean, it's kind of depressing that he's trying to kill himself throughout the entire film and keeps screwing up. It's a very dark When you plot. really start thinking about it, yes, it's, it's extremely yeah, dark. Yeah, like... He tries to hang himself and almost gets killed because his mother smacks the garage door open, and uh, he's hanging there like she's because she's vacuuming. And Kim Darby never wears a different outfit in the entire movie nope. except for the time she's except for Christmas morning. She's always wearing the same apron and what have you. She's always doing some sort of housework, and I think it was kind of a a running gag. He tries to poison himself and drives through the the garage door windows, which is another running yes. gag, because David Ogdenstiers is trying to get them fixed through the entire movie, and then um, the last time he does it is one of my wife's favorite lines of the movie, gee, I'm sorry your mom blew up, Ricky. Yeah, he, codes him, he has that the, the, I guess it's like some kind of fuel or kerosene, and the woman drinks it and then lights her cigarette and there's this huge explosion, <laughs> and it cuts to them in the car Gee, I'm really sorry your mom blew up, Ricky. <laughs> and you know, every once in a while, <laughs> and one of us, if we're having like fries, French bread, <laughs> and to drink Peru. That's <laughs> just that's that's what this movie is. You're right. That's what this movie is. And, it, and it's kind of hard to talk about this film in an organized way because it's such yeah. a scatterbrained film. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could sit there and go scene by scene by scene but it really doesn't do I, I don't think it really does the film as much justice as it, yeah. as it deserves and yeah the ending with him in the baseball it's just like he really didn't know how to end this movie did he so we're just going to no. put him in a baseball stadium but it's still kind of it kind of works and you know we, we have the typical like 80 sports movie moment where he skis the K-12 which is the big thing mm-hmm. he, he thinks this is going to get his girlfriend back if he can mm-hmm. ski better than the douchebag you know bully guy you know that, yeah. Then, you know, hey, that you know, this is going to solve all of his problems. So he does that, right? Okay, so you think the film is over. And then, you know, he's making out with Beth, and that kind of goes to the wayside because he goes and runs and gets Monique. And then there's a sword fight with, with, ski, with poles. ski poles with Ricky, and he takes off with her. And really, that's the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Them driving off and the, the rocket ship gag, because the other running gag is that his brother, his younger brother, is always doing something really weird. We have he, the, the the first appearance of Taylor Negron uh, in 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 the Savage Steve Holland films, where he plays the 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 mailman who uh, who delivers the how to pick up trashy women yeah. book. His appearance in Better and in, in How I Got into College, 
had me laughing out loud mm-hmm. when I watched it the other day. It, that's that's his best scene out of the three movies and how I got into college. But yeah, this is this because he also asked he also asked Lane about asking yeah. out Beth. So and and, um, and then finally at the end, his brother apparently builds a space shuttle. Space shuttle out of household parts. <laughs> that that's your ending. Well, you know, going yeah. to the to the stadium really. I, I guess wasn't there a line earlier that she wanted to go see a baseball game? She's shown wearing a Brooklyn, an LA Dodgers hat, and she said, "You know, I wanted, always wanted to come to the states and see Dodger Stadium." So it makes sense, yeah. but it still feels like this was kind of unnecessary. However, yeah. as I keep saying throughout this whole thing, because I keep going back and forth, it's like this is bad, but this is why the movie's awesome. This is bad, yeah. but this is why the movie is awesome. The the just the the, sh- the sheer like weirdness, like there, and I really don't know how to feel about this scene now. There's like this girl who is apparently the property of the basketball team. <laughs> it's roller skates. And yeah, he's on roller skates. And of course, we get our bra and panty shot, and she was yeah. rather good in it. And apparently, that's like one of the few films that woman did, by the way. Um, I'm just kind of wondering that it, 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 it doesn't feel misogynistic, but it feels like really weird that there's this one girl that apparently these huge, hulking guys you know all lay claim to it's very strange it it's it's because <clears throat> it's a pg or pg13 movie but your r-rated mind takes that to its inevitable conclusion yes and i think that's what that's it's it's like the the it's it's i don't think anybody who who wrote heathers saw this movie but there are bits and pieces that you could see almost like the groundwork for something like a heathers laid because heathers takes some of the stuff from here to an inevitable conclusion yes you know absolutely. like where it gets it's deliberately dark this is just dark but it's weird and it's absurd and it's silly you know and, but it's it's subtle enough that it's not stupid and it's why the film works because you have scenes like him falling off the bridge into the trash mm-hmm. bag and captain fuller says that's a perfectly good waste of a wife <laughs> like boy and it's just it, it there, there is nothing uh, on just a pure enjoyment of sitting there watching a movie level. There is nothing wrong with this. Even the skiing yeah. stuff, even though I think some of those montages were there to kind of fill out the film a little bit because you mm-hmm. know they didn't have enough going on elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, which is why I think we got that you know Van Halen moment. Um, yeah, that's that's. I wrote that down. That it was the, the worst part of the movie for me. In fact, I think I've fast-forwarded through that part before when watching the film. It just just doesn't feel like it really belongs anywhere. It's like him getting the job there was all a setup so that he could take, you know, Monique there to the restaurant to feed her frozen dinners. Exactly. Which is what his mother gave him for Christmas. and, and, And you talk about how this movie's moments and its scenes and its bits. I will watch right around Christmas just the... Christmas scene, mm-hmm. which is a good five ten minutes, and my sister and I will call each other up. Christmas, <laughs> Christmas. It every year. I mean, it's because they're they're wearing. It's it's just one fucked up gag after another. They're wearing, and when when David Oxenstiers zips up oh, the Ardvark so costume, and he goes, it's warm, and then they the 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 garage door but it's just it's like there's timing in there that is just absolutely brilliant and it's it seems so normal though i don't know it's it's this weird like 
I remember how you liked the the apple pie in this one. Ooh, and look, corn and seasoned sauce. Like, <laughs> like the TV dinners, and yet it's not done like this would be the dumbest thing in the world if this were a sitcom. I, I honestly, if this had an audience, it would be stupid. This film. I think the fact that. Oh, I'm sorry. I keep interrupting track. you. I apologize. No, no. I was just saying. I was trying to. I was a roundabout way in saying that I'm glad this movie didn't have a laugh track. Yeah. The uh, it's almost like he wrote this film like he wasn't going to ever write another film again. Like <laughs> like he's always wanted to do a film about skiing. Yeah. He's always wanted to do a film where the guy fixes up a car and gets the mm-hmm. hot girl and, and 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 all these bits and 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 that's and on that level, I actually kind of appreciate it because if you yeah. think you're only going to get one shot at something then you do it for all it's worth, basically. Yeah. And, you know, as, as a first effort uh, in terms of, I think this was his, yeah, that was his first feature this film. His first movie, yeah. I think, you know, coming out of the gate, it's actually really freaking good. It is, and, and from what I read, it was a disappointment that it didn't do as well as they thought it would do, because apparently they had a, and, and you can tell, and it's such a cliche to say, oh, we had such great times making this movie. But apparently it was really, really fun. Even for Cusack, who hates this film. Why does he it's hate this movie? Because the story goes that during the filming of One Crazy Summer, they went... They, like, they filmed those two movies back-to-back. Okay. And they... With different studios, though, because... Um, Warner Brothers did one crazy summer. I don't remember who. It was like CBS or somebody did did a better off dead. But um, but during the filming of One Crazy Summer, they went to see Better Off Dead because it was premiering or whatever, or it was a advanced screening, or but they or they showed it on the set. And the I don't know how true this is. It might just be one of those Hollywood urban legends or whatever. But apparently, Cusack walked up to Steve Holland and said, "You ruined my career." And and he kind of and you could kind of tell at points he's phoning it in in one crazy summer because apparently he was just unruly and if you look at Cusack's career, one crazy summer and better off dead, with the exception of Hot Pursuit, which for all I know that might have been in the can for a while. I don't even think I've seen that whole movie. This comes out in the middle of the Sure Thing, Stand by Me. Um. Uh, well, Natty Gann was, was had already been made. Um, eight Men Out, and then he'd go on to do Say Anything, and in the ninety, he he was trying to get adult roles. Yeah. He, tape head, tape heads. Is that the name of the movie with Tim Robbins? Yes. Tape heads. Yeah, that's which is a cult film in itself, and so Cusack, Cusack I think thought that he was going to end up being, um, pigeonholed. Uh, perhaps, and so that he he's just always kind of tried to disown this movie in that way that some actors do try to dis- disown that that early career movie that they can't stand, which is ridiculous because this is a great movie. Yeah, um, it, it is kind of a yeah. It is too bad if he does feel yeah. that way because you yeah. know <laughs> I think he it, would I think he would want to like disavow Grandview USA. I know over something to, like this or Money for Nothing. It leads to two gags in two other movies. Um, in Hot Tub Time Machine, you they're at the ski resort, and you hear someone in the background of the movie scream, I want my $2 as they ski by, and you see Cusack kind of roll his eyes at it. <laughs> Maybe that's that movie, coming to terms with it. Yeah, that movie, which is pretty funny, has one of the best, like, we're going to say the title of the movie s- scenes in the movie, where they're like, 
where they where Clark Duke turns to them and he's like, You realize what what happened and, and, and uh oh, the black guy, he's on the office and I can't remember his name, like Craig Robinson or something, he just looks at he deadpans. It's like some sort of hot tub time machine. It's just a deadpan <laughs> recitation of the line. And the two of us were watching this movie and just like doubled over laughing so hard from that. The other gag is the opening of Gross Point Blank. Mm-hmm. Where he shoots the he shoots the bike messenger assassin. It's supposedly a reference. It's supposedly him shooting the paperboy. That's from funny as Dead. hell. I it's never really thought best. about that. And, I, yeah. and that's the thing is that he would go on to do movies like that. He would do, he, you know, he, he, you know, Stand by Me was a good dramatic, uh, yeah. dramatic role. Which apparently a lot of that got cut out of the film. They filmed a lot more with him, from what I understand. Oh really? really? Uh, but you know, and then say anything. I think say anything would pigeonhole him more as a teenage. You know, would, actor than 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 better off Deadwood because what say anything is like you know especially for people yeah. our age that's like our jam that's our anthem it, that's our it it is he went on to do a movie though that I haven't seen uh, called The Grifters which with, damn near killed everybody's career in that yeah film. but apparently he got like it was he eventually figured out <clears throat> that you do the serious movie and you do the silly movie. And he would do the silly movies to pay for the serious movies. But he didn't figure that out until like the late 90s. And he co-wrote Gross Point Blank and High Fidelity. Um, the screenplays mm-hmm. of which anyway, because Nick Hornby obviously wrote the novel High Fidelity. But both of those, I mean, if I've got a top five Cusack movies, it's those two and then um, Better Off Dead and The Sure Thing and Say Anything. You know, not the road to Wellville, which I really need nah. to see, by the way, because uh, I've never seen that either. <laughs> there are other movies he's done, like he was good in City Hall, and he, but but yeah, he just hates this Con movie. Air. Yeah, Con Air. He's actually pretty good in Con Air, and then and and he go, but he went on to make One Crazy Summer. I'll use this as a segue. Yes, it's going to be one crazy summer for John Cusack, one slightly off basketball player, for Demi Moore, one slightly soaked hitchhiker. For Bobcat Goldthwait. One slightly strange babysitter. And for all their slightly insane friends, it's going to be one crazy summer. Now playing at a theater near you. Which actually um, which feels like a sequel to this film. It, it does. Uh, there's a couple of a couple little bits uh, of trivia I picked up. Um, it's the highest grossing of the three films. Makes sense. Believe it or not, it made $13 million at the box office in 1986. It was the 62nd highest grossing movie of the year. Thank you, box office mojo, by the way. It made more than Labyrinth. Wow. It made more than Lucas, a movie that I know um, you you love. And, and I've seen back in like 1986 or 87. It made less than Howard the Duck. It made less than Howard the Duck. That's amazing. Which is, which is like the showgirls of the '80s, and it made less than Police Academy Three, back in training. Police Academy Three, by the way, forty-three point six million dollars. Really, and and this Ferris Bueller made seventy million that year. The highest-grossing movie in nineteen eighty-six was Top Gun. I think this is adjusted. I think Box Office Mojo adjusts the gross. For inflation or whatever, it was like 176 million dollars or something for Top Gun. But yeah, Police Academy three. But then again, they made. I remember seeing four in the theater, which had Bobcat Goldthwait in it. 
um, and David and what Spade, have you. and David Spade, and 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 Tony Hawk, and Lance Mountain, and and Brian Backer, who was a uh, rat from Fast Times, uh, and and Sharon Sharon Stone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, playing Sharon the, Stone. Kim Cattrall's in the first one. Playing Steve Gutenberg's romantic interest in this film. So. Yeah, it's not until five. It's not until Gutenberg leaves that that the movie franchise loses its steam because four was pretty successful as well. You forget that the people actually willingly saw Police Academy movies. That's because the first one is a really, really funny funny. movie. Yeah. Uh, The second one is okay. Doesn't quite recapture what the first one. The third one was just like, okay, this is obviously a series. The third third one ends with a jet ski chase. And then you get to the fourth one, which tries to kind of reinvigorate it. Mm -hmm. Uh uh, which I, I think the, the, the problem with the, the, the fourth one is that it doesn't have G.W. Bailey in it. Yeah. Uh, but it has that other guy that isn't as funny. Yeah. Um, and then Gutenberg it's... leaves. And, and, and this is the only time you'll ever hear this phrase. Once Steve Gutenberg left, the film's kind of tanked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he would go on to do a movie that I think you've mentioned. And like I said, only me and my probably my father have seen. Don't tell her it's me. Which is now renamed the Boyfriend School. Which yeah. is the name of the With novel it was based on. I saw that. Jamie, Jamie Gertz and uh, Shelley Long, mm-hmm. which has its moments. It's not actually. It's actually that a bad. really funny movie, yeah. and as one of the best mullets you will ever see in your entire life. That nothing is a no. mullet. You want a mullet? Watch Stone Cold with Brian Bosworth <laughs> and Lance Hendrickson. Oh, yes. That's a mullet. That's that's a Dick Grayson mullet, my friend. So, this is why I'll always fall on your side of it, because I'm a Nightwing fan. <laughs> and you had to suffer through a mullet. You know what a mullet is, sir. <laughs> oh. Anyway, One Crazy Summer. Um, again, not much of a plot. You kind of signed, summed it up earlier. He's once again, John Cusack once again is Savage's uh, main man. This time we're not skiing, we're, we're sailing. We're on the mm-hmm. beach in Nantucket. Cusack and plays Hoops McCann. And there's basketball. Yeah, there's basketball, because he plays Hoops McCann. A recent high school graduate who can't shoot for anything. That's a kind of a running gag that never really gets heightened to the point of some of the running gags in Better Off Dead, though. Um, he's trying to get into art school, and in order to get into art school, he has to turn in a portfolio project that involves telling a love story, but he's never been in love. It's kind of a lovesick teenager type. Along the way, he meets uh, Cassandra, who is played by Demi Moore, who is like either right before or right after about last night. Uh, and uh, Cassandra and Hoops hit it off. The plot becomes the fact that Cassandra's grandfather owns a house and Cassandra's grandfather dies and leaves the house to her. Mm-hmm. And the house is sitting on prime real estate that the Beckersteads, this very rich family on Nantucket, who the father is played by uh, Mark Metcalf, who was Niedermeyer in Animal House. And the son is your average, like, Billy Zabka type of villain, even though he's not played by Billy Zabka, um, preppy asshole, uh, they want the house, and they're going to get the bank to foreclose if, if she doesn't pay up the mortgage, and the whole thing becomes about them trying to save the house, and it eventually ends with this regatta around Nantucket, because if they, if, if Teddy, Teddy, who's the younger Beckerstead, doesn't win the regatta, the grandfather pulls all the inheritance and, and what have you, and they win the race, and and whatnot, and um, I prefer Better Off Dead because Better Off Dead comedy kind of holds up a little bit more. Not to say that there aren't some very very funny scenes. 
I just get annoyed by Bobcat Goldthwait in this movie. He this is when he, Bobcat was at like hit the height of his you know rah, rah, kind of career. Yeah, oh, this was the height of of Bobcat because this was in the middle of the Police Academy cycle where like he had just done he, three and four came out like right around the same time as this one, so he was at the height of his Bobcatness. It, it, the the weird thing about this film that I want to go through before we really get into anything is the cast. Um, yeah, you you have John Cusack Fine. as Hoops, so you know mm-hmm. pretty. You have Joel Murray, who is one of the younger brothers of Bill Murray. His acting credits are not as long as his brother, but he, you know, you'll recognize him, especially if you've seen the movie Scrooged. Uh, he yes. plays the younger, uh, the younger Murray, and 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 not the younger Murray. That's his younger brother in the film. He plays a guy that's at them in the movie with. Uh, like the guest at his house and they look almost exactly alike and it's distracting every time I see that film. He um he also he has had a recurring role on Mad Men as as kind of a down on his luck guy who was eventually at one point he was an alcoholic and fired from uh Starling Cooper. And he was he did some sitcom work back in the nineties. Yeah, I want to. I don't remember. He was really good in this movie. Uh, I really like his performance. Uh, Demi Moore is in this film, and you're kind of like throughout the entire film going, "What the fuck is Demi Moore doing in this movie?" Yeah, (laughs) she's not. She's not as irritating as she can be. But Um, but she was like, what you basically had was a full on brat packer kind of slumming, quote unquote slumming in this, and that was really really bizarre for me. Uh, you have Bobcat Goldthwait as Eggstorm. You've got mm-hmm. Tom Villard as Clay, and Tom Villard was one of those that guys uh, until unfortunately yes. he passed away in the early nineties. Yeah, he died. He died of AIDS actually, right around the same time as uh, Merritt Buttrick died uh, of AIDS. There is a guy named Stain who has a pink uh, wig that is chasing Demi Moore. It's John Matusak, who played Sloth in Goonies. And was a former, I believe, linebacker or defensive lineman for the uh, then Los Angeles Raiders, or he, they were with they were still in Oakland when he played because he was in the he was on the he was on the Raiders team that beat the Eagles in the Super Bowl in the early nineteen eighties, mm-hmm. and Matuzak was known for partying. Yeah, he died at the age of thirty eight. Um, yes, so had a lot of uh, Matt yeah. Mulhern is the younger Beckerstead in this movie, mm-hmm. and I will th- always think of him as either the guy from Biloxi Blues, uh, who mm-hmm. has a Savage Steve Holland connection in there, but also as one of the, the, the su- supporting characters in Major Dad. Uh, okay. Uh, which was a, a show I watched in reruns in the early 90s because I didn't have a lot going on in my life at the time. Uh, he plays so the douchebag very well. Yes, he does. Uh, still likable, but you mm-hmm. you, you, you want to hate him. Um, yep. The Joe Flaherty plays Curtis Armstrong's dad and has some of the best lines in the film, I think. Yes. At least in, in and, his delivery of them. <laughs> and this is almost Joe Flaherty's warm-up for playing Mr. Weir yeah, on Freaks exactly. and Geeks because he owns a sporting goods store on Freaks and Geeks. And he's, to- he's, he's not as insane as in One Crazy Summer, but oh, the... <laughs> Boys, tourniquet. <laughs> there's he, no, he has some great There's lines. no plan. There's no attack. There's no attack. There's attack, no victory. There's no victory. <laughs> Where am I um, there is one guy in this that will 
continue to work with John Cusack again and again and again. Jeremy Piven mm-hmm. uh, perfecting his comb over, as you said to me the other night when we were talking he, on. He he's because he was in. Um, I was on Entourage. Obviously, I never yeah. watched Entourage, but whenever I see him in a commercial or whatever, I'm like, you are not fooling anybody. PCU is one of my favorite movies to just watch like Better Off Dead, where Mm -hmm. it's just like moments and random lines and what have you. In fact, Comedy Central showed that thing for years, and I didn't watch it on video because I would just watch it on Comedy Central. And he's like, he's he's clearly balding in that movie. He's like, you know, he's, he's two years away from being Jason Alexander. And so like now he's, I'm like, dude, you got plugs. Like, but it was actually it was funny. I thought this was his first movie, and you pointed out that he's in Lucas, looking a little younger. We're looking a little younger, so it's, uh, first, I that was pretty interesting. First, I will always associate with him with ten years. Yes. I'm a professional killer. You get dental with that. <laughs> One of my favorite jokes in that movie for the I don't know. I just like the do you get dental with that that joke. That and, you know, my, my dad married a girl. She's a biscuit older than I am. Um, <laughs> but it's just, you know, like, you, you look at all these people, and it's this brilliant mm. cast. I mean, Rich Hall, who yes. nobody except people who, like, grew up in the 80s, and especially if you watched the Weekly World News. I'm uh, not the Weekly World News. Not, not necessarily, necessarily the news on Sniglets. HBO with Sniglets, which kind of made his career. I'm sure he retired on Sniglets. Um He's a you gas know, station attendant. They're, they're the gas station attendants who you want to die. Um, yes. Now, here's a care. Here's a guy. This is this is the one of the weirdest experiences of my life. There's a character in this movie named Uncle Frank. Um, yeah. Uncle Frank's entire purpose is to be the guy that smokes too much and is trying to, um, trying to win this radio contest throughout the entire film. Uh-huh. And there's like all these kind of great gags of him electrocuting himself, and yeah. you know, and at the end he has the big thing where he wins, but he rips the phone line out, and he doesn't win, so he uses a rocket launcher from earlier in the film. Uh, this is the Chekhov's rocket launcher, I guess you would yes. call it, uh, because if you are going to put a rocket launcher on screen, somebody in the cast has to use it. Um, it gets fired twice. Yeah, but. Um, he blows it up to the in the radio station is this little shack in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, Rich Little in it. Little. So I, I so I'm like, okay, that's what I think of him, mm-hmm. the, the, the guy, uh, Bruce Wagner. Yeah. So I'm so I finally years ago break down and buy the Nightmare on Elm Street box set. Okay. Okay. Now it has all seven of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. I love these movies unabashedly. I will not defend five or six, but I will watch them occasionally. So all the way up to New Nightmare. Yeah, so all the way up to New Nightmare. So, And it had this thing called the Nightmare Encyclopedia, which mm-hmm. was this very bizarre DVD, because you could you could do it one of two ways. You could either watch all of the behind-the-scenes stuff on the movies, like in an index, or you mm-hmm. could go through this game where you're going through this insane asylum, and you click on things in the rooms you're in, and you're collecting keys so you can watch certain videos at the end of it. And then, like, you'll click on something and you'll see, like, an MTV clip with Freddy in it. Uh-huh. Okay. But if you watch the index, it goes pretty much straightforward interviewing the people involved with the films. So I start watching the section on three, and this dude shows up. Oh, really? Because he was going to co-write three with huh. Wes Craven. Craven. And he had all these ideas, and I'm like... 
dude, you're fucking Uncle Frank from What Crazy Summer. I can't take you seriously. The the only other movie I remember that guy from, he's A in How yes. I Got Into College. Yes. <laughs> that's, and, that's and the he, only other movie. And he has other, you know, he was in Shocker, yeah. which is a movie that we all probably, that you you probably remember at least you remember the ads in the yeah. uh, the thing but but no he was a he has a screenplay story credit for Nightmare on Elm Street three and it was just really weird because you know you assume you know you know I am the guy that likes to see the connections you know mm-hmm. I, I think especially in the podcasting world I have gotten that reputation that I can connect anything to Superman basically. Um, but I carry that all through my life. This was one of those connections I never expected to see. Yeah, I'm. I think one of the reasons that I, I one of the things that I, I caught on to the whole Superman thing with you because I'm the same person, not with Superman, just in general. Like, and it's with bit parts, you know, like this person who's now starring in this movie. I remember when they were like, you know, waitress number two in a romantic comedy from four years ago that I went and saw with my girl, you know, like that sort of thing too. I'm the same way. But, but getting into the film itself, it's a more cohesive movie mm-hmm. than, I mean, the whole, the whole biker thing at the beginning that introduces, um, Demi Moore's character. is yeah. kind of like, it's like you put a lot of effort into this and to never see them again. Um, yeah. but again, you get the great, Savage Steve Holland isms of, you know, you see him like at the very beginning crumple up a piece of paper and throw it at a basket, you know, that's over a trash can, and there's just paper everywhere. It's basically my classroom. And his mother shrinks his his uh, his graduation gown. And she watched it. The high school is generic high school, and the elementary yeah, school is generic. Generic. Yeah, the 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 one of my one of the bits of the graduation scene where they toss their mortar boards and he's hugging the guy and the mortar board embeds it itself <laughs> in the guy's back because it came down and, and impaled him. And according <laughs> to Bobcat Goldthwait, because uh, I watched a little bit of the commentary, uh huh. Bill Murray loves this movie. Oh really? Simply, basically loved it from the beginning because of all the little bits that he threw in. Because Bobcat uh-huh. worked with him in Scrooge. And and Bobcat, when he talks normal, it's very weird to hear. Um, I've seen him on talk shows and stuff, and it's very odd. But he's just like, yeah, Bill really liked this movie, and 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 apparently they would mess with Joel all the time by saying Bill's coming to the set. Uh, by the way, the set of this film is Nantucket, and it's almost a character in and of itself. This is a yeah. gorgeously shot movie. <laughs> yes, it's it's very very well shot. Um, they took full advantage of the fact that they were filming on the island all summer, and I like that. If you're losing, if you're using a location like that, you know, use it. Use, be- it. use it to the best of your ability. Yeah. But you're right about these little bits. Like for instance, that chase scene with the with the biker. Mm-hmm. The fact that that he lets the camera linger for an extra second when the gas pump yeah finally falls off the car because they've been dragging it for miles. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the Christmas tree on top of the station wagon. Exactly. And the fact that Demi Moore is in the car at all. Yeah. like She just shows up like, where did you come yeah, from? Exactly. And it's just this really great, just, just a really great set of physical gags. And the mm. only reason they gave uh, Stain the pink wig was so that they could have the gag where he falls into the water. He comes out, there's fish on top, Flish. jiggling and all that. Yeah. 
trying to look at my notes and trying to think of other other the the running gag with the dog. The dog yes. has one of those collars, and you can't make fun of the dog because anytime somebody makes fun of the dog or does something to the dog, something really bad happens to them. Let, let me tell you, uh, since, since I've seen this film last, I have become a dog owner, uh, and I'm one of these people that you know. I'm just I, I fully believe in the if you come to my house, my dog lives here. You don't, so just you know, yeah. <laughs> keep that in mind, please. Um, when Beckerstead kicks the dog. I wanted to jump into the screen and beat him with a tire iron or a crowbar Joker style. Because it was just like, why did none of you kick this guy's ass? I mean, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he gets eaten by a giant dolphin yes, he with does. rabies. With rabies, which is mm-hmm. one of the great, which is making fun of Jaws in like one of the best ways yeah. ever. Uh, <laughs> I... Do you... Do you also get the feeling that the end of this movie is a little bit rushed? Um, yeah, because, you know, you, you, you have the whole... The animation is a little... It's not distracting, but it's not exactly... You know, like, you have the whole cute and fuzzy bunny thing. It's a nice mm-hmm. pitching technique. And especially, like, the scene where he's drawing for Demi Moore and the animation is on the page. Yeah. Uh, I think that looks pretty slick. Yeah, he tr- he did a little bit of that in Better Off Dead. Yeah, which was which is also used to very good effect. It was it was cute. But you know, it's it's you know the setup of this film is that they're trying to save this house, which is your like mm-hmm. typical '80s thing. Uh, there's some great little running gags, like the fact that the grandmother is charging them to stay there and charging them for meals. Um, you know, you have the thing with the Stork brothers, but even but every once in a while, you feel something for these characters, like you, like I didn't feel in Better Off Dead, like when when Teddy. Uh, Teddy Beckerstead brings the, the the car in and he hits one of the Stork brothers. Yeah. I'm like, I feel bad for this guy all this setting because he looks really upset. And that, that and you had he had he had done that a couple of times earlier. Yeah, because he in, in other scenes, and then you hear Bobcat Goldthwait go all Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yeah. but you don't know what exactly is going on until what for years was my favorite part of the favorite line to recite with my friend Rich where it was like, prepare to blow the hatch I am blowing the hatch and he's like, what are they having that? My car. My car <laughs> and the Ferrari that I always thought was hilarious although I always picked up the fact that and, and I'd have to, maybe if I could watch it on DVD and see it really clearly on my television, I might have a different opinion. I'm pretty sure that those are all the stunt people on the boat when they go by giving the middle finger after they've I think so. It just on a split second, it doesn't look like them. That always bugged me. I don't know why. But you know, we 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 have the the typical hijinks and the typical complications. Yeah. You know, he's attracted to Demi Moore's character. Uh, he's trying to help her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he you know, there's some goofy stuff with that. But then there's the complication of Teddy's girlfriend takes a shine to him. So mm-hmm. there's a whole scene where it comes out that he's not a good basketball player, which. It, it it's like okay, I see why you're doing this, but it feels kind of weird because then he has to make up with her, and yeah. and then like a lot of the end of this film is spent with them building the boat. Yes, the boat building montage, which I like the fact that they name it the boat. Yes, and the sail is a uh, what's a matter you bed sheet. I mean, there, which my father had to explain to me by the way. <laughs> there's there's funniness in there, but you're right. It's it's because I I, I happen to have. Um, I happened to glance over at the timer on my VCR as I was watching this, and I had I had backed the movie because like I when I 
put the tape in the VCR. It was at the very, very end of the movie, so I had to rewind it. So it was it was counting down from one hour and thirty minutes or thereabouts. The boat race is all of like it's like seven minutes mm-hmm. for what's supposed to be like the climactic thing of the movie, and the boat race. Them in the boat race. It not that it comes out of nowhere, because toward the beginning of the movie, there's some talk between Teddy and his father about it. But the fact that the guys are going to get the the house back through the boat race ca- comes as like you know, Ak Ak thinks of it at the last minute. You know, it's it's like it truly is a last last ditch effort. Unlike the K twelve, which you know he's going to do. Yeah, throughout the entire film, he's throughout trying. The entire to get, movie. He's trying to get on the ski team, and basically, yeah. the the best way to get somebody to get, be not afraid to be on a boat is to fuck them on one. Is uh, another thing I took away from this uh, from this film, uh, because John Cusack's character is afraid of boats, leading to one of the lines in the movie that I didn't realize I was quoting all this time. I will do this. I will hear a line in a movie, and then all mm-hmm. my life I will start. I will continue saying it, but forget where I get it from. And in this movie, it's chili dog. <laughs> when he because me and my friends would like go to go to Crystal, chili and I'd be like chili dog, and I'd be like, why the hell am I saying that? And then I'd eat the chili dog. Um, so yeah, I I love that line. Too. Uh, one of the best things about this film, though, is that the cast really gels together. Uh, even Bobcat, even yeah. as obnoxious as he is throughout the entire film, everybody has really good chemistry together. Uh, you feel something for him at the end. I got to admit, this is this is going to sound silly as hell. When Joe Flaherty comes up to his son, played by Curtis Armstrong, at the end and gives him a hug, I'm just like, that's it's, so sweet. <laughs> it's a nice, it's a nice moment. Apparently, apparently, the original cut of this movie was longer, and and there were there were some scenes that were cut out, and it it. It leads me to believe that there was a little bit more between those two, and there was a little bit more between George and Cookie. Yeah, because he just kisses. He's like, "Let's quit all these games," and you're like, "Wait, what?" I'm like, "All right." Well, it just okay, shows what a what a complete nutter yeah. like flake she is that she'll just go yeah. about with whoever is, you know, kind of uh, yeah. kind of thing. She, by the way, uh, was in Dragnet. Apparently, the uh, Dan Aykroyd, Tom, Tom Hanks one. So I haven't seen that in 25 years. Yeah. So <laughs> Tell the, the the girl that uh, that, that played uh, Cookie Kimberly Foster has one of those careers that stops around 1995. So kind of like um, Amanda Peterson who played uh, Cindy Cindy uh, Mancini in Can't Buy Me Love. Yeah, exactly. It's just like who's oh, you're gonna go? Okay, yeah. maybe you got married. Yeah, hopefully um, you got married. <laughs> in fact, one of the scenes that was cut um, was. Very quickly, uh, Diane Franklin was supposed to walk right by John Cusack at the end of the movie. Interesting. In the, on the dot on the docks, and they shot the scene, but it ended up on the cutting room floor. I'd like to see that. That would be awesome to see. Yeah, so um, she is. She is. She said so much in a. I think it, she she wrote an autobiography a couple of years ago. It's 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 a. I don't know. I think I, I I've read bits and pieces of it, and I and I read that out of there, or that on a trivia site or something, or through an interview with her or something like that. So the um but. oh the the other the 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 little weird God he's in this movie moment is William Hickey as the old man Beckerstead. 
Yes. And you're like, that's the dude from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and he was mm-hmm. Dr. Frankenstein, and you know, he was mm-hmm. he was just like in all these freaking movies. And and you're talking and you're talking about recognizing people from other movies. The the guy from the bank who gets his neck wrung because yes. he's laughing at Bobcat Goldthwait in the in the Godzilla costume wrecking the the display, which is a funny scene, I will admit, is Eddie from Big Trouble in Little China. Yes! And I recognize him because I watched Big Trouble in Little China in the fourth grade. Like, I must have watched it 10 or 12 times with my friends. Another movie that we just saw at random, somebody had rented, and we were like, what is this? This is so cool. It was also in Rapid Fire, but in a much better This film holds together a lot better. Um, The soundtrack is kind Mm -hmm. of weird. Because you have these two songs that Demi Moore, I guess she sang them. It sounds like her. she she sings this. I looked this up actually. She sings the second one, which is titled "Don't Look Back." The first one, which is titled "Take a Bow," of all things, is is. Uh, uh, can I read my own handwriting? Jamie Siegel. Nobody I'm familiar with, and I wasn't able to get an actual record, find an actual recording of it outside of it being in the movie. But the, there's no there's no actual like released soundtrack for one crazy song. But the most distracting song is the one from the very end. If I could grow wings, I would do anything just to keep you with me. Can't you see? Because you have like this kind of irreverent 80s comedy, and then you have the most cliched 80s credit song ever. Oh, it's 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 like uh yeah it, it's like something. Um, are you familiar with the song "Midnight Blue"? Yes. It's it reminds me of, of songs like that because it was the guy from Foreigner after he left Foreigner, mm-hmm. a band that I I have still found no justification for actually existing. Um, There's nothing. Every air every single band has one song that I can be like, yeah, I can listen to this. Air Supply has a song that I can listen to. It's written by Jim Steinman, but I can listen to it. I cannot listen to Foreigner can't listen to any song written by Jim Steinman that is not sung by Meatloaf because it just sounds weird. Speaking speaking of Meatloaf, on another upcoming episode of In Country, on the back cover of the uh, Oh, the Meatloaf helps out the Special the, Olympics! Yes! yes. <laughs> no, but it's just... This, this is more of a polished movie. You can tell he, it is. You know, he, he, he learns... I don't want to say it like... I'm, I'm, God, I'm sounding like a douchebag here, and I don't really mean to. You can kind of see that he grew a little as a writer and as a director. Yeah. The editing is a little more polished. There's not Mm -hmm. as much of the random sight gags. The gags are really integral to the the movie for the most part. It's like there's no dancing hamburger scene with Van Halen playing in the background. No. You know, even even when you have like a useless music scene, like the do drop in scene, uh, though Mm -hmm. apparently from what from reading. IMDb when uh, Joel Mer- when George Calamari uh, dances with the two girls at the Do Drop In, one of yeah. those is Savage Steve Holland's sister, whose oh, really? nickname was Squid, which is and that's the name of the little girl. Little girl is priceless in this movie. This girl it was a I, I've never seen a kid as comedically genius. Mm-hmm. As this girl, because she hardly has any film, any lines in the film, but she does these really funny things. Like when when they're when Taylor Negron and Rich Hall are making fun of her dog, which again made me want to punch them dead in the face because there was nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that dog. Um, 
she rolls up the window and their ties are cut and the grandma's just like well no one's gonna help me i'm getting out of here and the look of satisfaction as she knows these men are gonna be drug and injured is brilliant billy billy bird playing a role that nowadays would be clearly played by betty white yes yeah this this was the the uh yeah but um I think the one guy that really surprised me the most in this film, though, was Curtis Armstrong, because he uh-huh. looks younger in this film than yes. he does in any of his other roles around this time. Yes. And he was, yes. like, 30 years old at this point. I don't know if it's the slight waking, if it's the wardrobe. Or the... He's walking around in short shorts, a, a red sweatshirt, and a, and a hat, like the scout uniform. It, I, I don't know what it is, but you're right. And it's this is a role that, if you think of his big roles... It's the one that's completely different. Yes, like he's, if you better off dead and and Revenge of the Nerds, he, it's, he's not playing the exact same character, but he's playing the same type of character. He's he's playing the character that really doesn't give a shit. Yeah, you know? this this is the sweet kind of innocent guy. You know, there's a doll at guy. the beginning that's all broken yeah. up, and he's upset yeah. about it, and you know, yeah. it's just you, you like him right away, which is why when he reconciles with his dad at the end of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I actually felt something. I'm like, wow, you sold that one, Savage Steve Holland. Congratulations. Yeah. You made me choke up, you son of a bitch. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to come back, and when we get back, we're going to talk about the third and final movie of the show, which is 1989's How I Got Into College. Don't you make that mistake. Is it love that Play it. Come on. Play it loud. Play it loud. And now it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. A constant irritant. And freak! Two! Well, I'm the circus. Right next to the dog-faced boy. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. It's a super prize package worth $9,388. This isn't the biggest bag over the head punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! Go away, And now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake. Yeah, God damn lucky he didn't kill him. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid, 
You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Looking at me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now come on, let's go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! You're gonna get a shoe. I said shut up! It's a man home! A man home! Two truefreaks.com One night, Jesus Christ came to me on a flaming pie, and I will laugh. Like you wouldn't believe every single time. Yes, yes, and, and, and we and and with that we are back. Uh, finally, moving on to how I got into college, a movie that made it is a it is generally considered a box office bomb. It made one point six million dollars in nineteen eighty nine. It made more money than Heather's. However, um, Heather's tanked because the studio that distributed it basically went under. Like right around the time it tanked. And to so, be fair, what were you really going to beat Batman this year? Yeah, that was that was yeah some, yeah that was that was the superhero movie. I said the highest grossing movie of '89 was some superhero movie that neither of us has seen. No, it's Batman. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's just seriously. I mean, you know, it's, it's yeah. like um, UHF came out this summer. I love. UHF. And I love that movie, but it got. I mean, it's just like all those films got buried under things like you know. Mm-hmm. Ghostbusters 2, Indiana Jones yeah. and the Last Crusade. You know, that you was can, the summer of sequels. Yeah, you can make fun of it all you want. I actually rather kind of like parts of the film. Star Trek 5 was a big film that summer. Uh Honey I Shrunk yes. the Kid. Honey I Shrunk the Kids came out that summer. Mm-hmm. Uh what was that movie called? Um with Robin Williams where uh he Dead Poet Society. Society. Summer. God, every girl I knew in high school loved that movie. And that and School Ties. Prep, prep, good-looking preppy guys. Or Brendan Fraser looking pensive throughout most of the film. Yes. Yes. And oh, by the way, if you've seen any of these young actors in other movies, I'd be surprised because I have little-known guys like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, Affleck, and Chris O'Donnell, and it's just like, what the yeah. hell? <laughs> Matt Damon's plays such a prick in that one movie. Um, yes, he does. This this is the only movie, by the way, of the three that Savage Steve Holland didn't write. Uh, the movie's written by the screenwriting credit is Terrell Seltzer, whose only other big writing credit is a George Clooney, Michelle Pfeiffer romantic comedy called One Fine Day. Oh my God! And th- Holland was not even attached to direct. It was going to be directed by Jan Eliasberg, who has a long career as a TV director and really hasn't done much feature work. Um, she Savage replaced her. It was l- almost along the lines of Beans Baxter had failed and was canceled. He was looking for work. They offered him the movie, and he came in. And I, I read an interview on a site, and I was going to put a link to it in the show notes, but unfortunately, it's a dead link now. That um, he did what he could to put his trademark savageness on it. You could see where it is. Yes, the movie, the scene you just quoted, but it apparently was a a slightly more serious comedy, which is an oxymoron, I know, but a more serious movie than it it ends up being. And you can kind of see that in places, too. Um, The plot. There's actually kind of two plots that kind of intertwine in this movie. Um, First, we have Marlon Brown, who is a high school senior. He's played by Corey Parker, an actor I've only seen... (laughs) in this random Fox series called Flying Blind, which was the first time anyone tried to make Taya Leone happen. 
Because they tried to make Tay Leone happen for like a decade. He was in Biloxi Blues as the guy in the glasses that everyone thought was gay but wasn't gay and all that kind of stuff. That's that's why I connect him to Mm -hmm. Savage Steve Holland because what's his name from... um, from one, Joel Murray? one crazy summer, uh, uh, Teddy, Teddy, oh, yeah. he's also yeah. in, in that movie. So, okay. uh, I like him quite a bit in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I think he's really, really good. I think he plays the part really well. And Marlon, Marlon's goal at this point, by the way, is to get into Ramsey College, not because it's a good college, not because it's his dream college, but because Jessica Kalo, who is played by Lara Flynn Boyle, who is the 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 girl the the Diane Court of this place, um, uh, nice. is 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 going to go there. She's applying there, and he's going to go. He's going to he's had a crush on her for years. He's going to follow her to college. Um, while Marlon and Jessica run a gauntlet of SATs, applications, essays, college weekends, we have a secondary plot with Kip Hammett, played by Goose Anthony Edwards. Yes, uh, he's an admissions officer at Ramsey. He's having this sort of power struggle between him and uh, Leo played by the late Charles Rocket, who most people will remember playing basically the exact same douchebag role in Dumb and Dumber. Uh, He was the villain in Dumb and Dumber. Uh, He was also on Saturday Night Live, and he gets credit as the first person to ever say fuck on the air. Because he said, toward the end of an episode of Saturday Night Live, the end of the sketch, he slipped and he said, like, she fucking got me or something. I got that out of the Tom Shales book live from New York. That's the only reason I know it, but he killed himself a, a number of years ago. He was, uh, he was also in one of the most memorable episodes of moonlighting, uh, where he, he had a line that my mother would say for ever, uh, the mall, the mall has it all. And then they go to the mall and it's a really <laughs> funny scene. Uh, so that, that's what I think of him with that. <laughs> so, yeah. So Kip and Leah, this power struggle, cause the, 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 the dean of admissions is stepping down and Leo wants the job. Kit doesn't want to have it. And basically by the end of the movie, because basically Kip's the, the whole person guy. He looks at everybody, every aspect of the, of the applicant. And Leo's the numbers guy, you know? So your typical, like, you know, the nice guy versus the, the douchebag. And at the end, Marlon and Kip, they both come out on top because, you know, this, this is a, it's a comedy. Um, and again, it's, it's not so much a, it, I think it's a slightly more solid story. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that it also has the sort of the the lingering montage effect uh, later on um, when they're driving to college because Jessica's like at the last minute decided, yeah, he Marlon convinces her to put her application in, which comes after a very very funny scene, and then they have a college essay admissions and acceptance montage, which you could montage anything in the eighties. Um, Something an art that Hasselhoff would take to great heights on Baywatch, um, and uh, but yeah, but it's a movie really full of of moments. You have his friend Oliver, yes. his sidekick. His sidekick is Charles Demar Oliver, who's not going to go to college. He's going to stick out his thumb and hitchhike around the country because he wants to explore the world, and he hopefully will end up running a, running a, up against. Uh, a carload full of re- renegade game show hostesses who are traveling the, the world, world un- with unclaimed vac- vacation prizes. And at the very end of the movie, he does that. He sticks his thumb out, and who rolls up but Bob Eubanks from the newlywed game 
two hostesses, a U-Haul trailer full of prizes, and he gets in the car and he drives off with them. And thankfully, Corey Parker's reaction is that he, he crosses his eyes and he faints. Because <laughs> you're just like, what the fuck just happened here? I think yeah, one of the reasons why this feels like a more solid film is that you have two storylines going on. Yes. Uh, you, you have the things going on with Marlon and, and his high school. He's in, He's completely in love with this girl that he's never spoken to. You know, she's got her little clique of friends. And what's really interesting is that you see that clique of friends, you know, like at various points in the film, and one of them is just completely, conv- you know, like obsessed with getting into the school and, and nearly yeah. has like a nervous breakdown. And you and I talked about this a couple nights ago on Facebook about how she sits there on the phone and has this complete nervous breakdown about, you know, is, 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 the, is the envelope thin or fat? fat. Is it thin or fat, Mom? Th- this, th- this is one of the best satires of the college admissions process that I have ever seen, and it still holds up. Yes. Just like the first 20 minutes of Dead Man on Campus the, <laughs> is, is one of the best satires of the first, like, month of college. And then the movie kind of when they actually have to get the plot going on that movie, it falls apart for the most part. But, but yeah, this is just like there's so much in this movie where I've actually talked to students that I have. I said, go watch this movie, and they've come back and they were like, some of that stuff is really true. I'm like, the fat or thin thing. I realized that they're getting the emissions over email now. Yeah. But man, I'll never forget. I got rejected from one school when I applied. It happened to be Dartmouth, <laughs> but I got rejected. And my dad came, comes home and he goes, hey, you got an envelope from Dartmouth. And this was after, like, all the acceptance. I, like, and, I, and it was thin. And I looked at it and I said, Dad, it's thin. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think what also separates this film from the other is that Jessica has kind of an arc in and of herself. She, you know, mm-hmm. Marlon's in love with her. And I'll get to Marlon mm-hmm. in a second. But she, you know, she... She wants to do more with her life than what her sisters have done, which is to go to Michigan. And yeah, she's, she's like stressing she, out about everything. She wants to be different. And I think that really makes that, that it's one of the things that makes this film so rewatchable to me is that you have characters like this. Yeah, her sisters are all sorority girls out of Michigan, and she doesn't want to be shallow. She wants to do something deeper. She wants to do something more meaningful. And you're right. And she's pursuing, she's taking a shot at, at Michigan. No, I mean at Ramsey, and uh, and she has one of the most calamitous interviews. Yes, because at the beginning of the movie, she tells the urban legend about the girl who um, got hit with a stress question and review- took her top off in the interview, and, and they say what happened to her. She she's she's like they locked her away. She's like no, she's dead. She slit her wrist with the application forms, which is a great line. And then she does that happens to her. She she sweats it out in the lobby where she looks around and she sees that there's like girls dressed like her. She sits down next to this girl wearing like these two twins who are like yeah. you know like super twins. And then she sits down to this next girl who's wearing a retainer is so unassuming. And then she she picks up a copy of Life magazine and there the girls on the yeah, cover yeah. because she's like invented something. And and it, he he weaves the two plots in because there's this running gag about how the one admissions officer had been tricked into admitting a pig yes. the previous year, so they keep putting pigs in his office. So, like, he's trying to keep all the pigs away from her, and he asks her 
something and you hear in her head stress question stress question and then like he's you know well it's over the, you know the interview's over miss you know and she takes her top off but he doesn't he doesn't see, see her and she just but they flip to her they just zoom to her cut to her really quickly and she's sitting there in a straight jacket with no makeup on going is there anything you'd like to reveal about yourself <laughs> it's just like which leads to the blink and you'll miss it Dan Schneider Oh, I love that thing where he's, uh, you know, where where she runs by him and he's like, "Fuck!" <laughs> She's saying, "Shit, I'm never gonna get in here." Um, I want to save Marlon for last because yeah. I, I think he's, you know, he, he is let's, not only is he the main character, he's one of my favorite characters. What, what's let's do Kip and we could do Kip and them because it's 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 a solidly written thing, but it's obviously this was where the movie was kind of supposed to be serious at points. Yes. Especially with Nina and the, the, the African-American inner city girl, Vera, who's working at the McDonald's and, you know, her mom's like, you can't go to college. You can't afford it. And she's tries, she goes and applies anyway. And she gets in the end. It's, it's, it's the feel good part. It's the played by you know, Tishna Arnold, who would go on to be like in, in uh, everybody hates Chris. Oh, really? And she was one of the singers in little shop of horrors. Uh, at the beginning, um, yeah, she's uh, she's had a really she she's been in a lot of stuff. She's got a really large IMDb uh, resume. Mm-hmm. If you ever, and she was on Martin, okay. uh, which proves that Martin pretty much plucked the three singers from Little Shop of Horrors uh, to, to be on his show. Uh, but you also have like you know Ronnie Surehands Wilson, uh, who is who is played by the guy who spent the entire length of the movie summer school in the bathroom yes and 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 did really well on the test yeah he's got the highest grade uh, but he, he but he's also been in a bunch of other he was in yeah, uh, necessary a roughness stuff. yes and, uh all that kind of thing leading to one of my favorite little side characters uh brian doyle murray, doyle playing murray. coach <laughs> evans coach. it's ronnie sure is god damn it he, like every line he has he lists yeah. ends with god damn it god damn. and at the end when Surehands has the press conference and he decides he's not playing football and he puts on the glasses, he does that 80s thing that only like Dan Aykroyd could pull off with a cigarette where he's got his mouth open and the cigarette's kind of like dangling stuck to his lip. Yeah. Um, and just like all of the, all of the like side characters that are getting in, you know, that are mm-hmm. also trying to get into Ramsey, but yeah, the, the, the adult subplot, um, yeah really comes off well because you have all these solid actors. You have Anthony Edwards mm-hmm. uh, who had not yet been on ER. Uh, I was just like five years away from it. Uh, you ha- you have Charles Rocket who is a solid comedic actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Finn Carter plays Nina. Uh, not really overly familiar with her. Uh, again, she's one of these people that has had a pretty good long career it looks like. Uh, uh, she was on Law and Order but who the hell wasn't on Law and Order? So. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Philip Baker Hall, who is one of the epitome of the "Hey, it's that guy." Yes, guys, plays the the dean of admissions. Who he's he's it's a very small role. He's there to just kind of be the straight man in in the the room full of these wacky college admissions, just arguing college admissions group and what have you. But you're right. It's there. There's a certain amount of commitment, which it's this kind of a shame. This movie didn't do as well. Didn't do well. Yeah, I will always associate him, by the way, with um, with uh, his role in Boogie Nights, where he plays one of the rival porn producers mm-hmm. that Burt Reynolds eventually gets in uh, gets yeah. involved with. So, yeah, he also ends up being uh, he finally got some due for his role in Magnolia. 
which was another P.T. Anderson movie, um, which I've only seen once. But he was getting a lot of attention for that. And he was on... What's the name of the show? Like, Better Off Ted. He was on one of those shows that came out a couple of years ago. It was like a kind of a corporate boardroom parody show that was kind of trying to ape the office. He was either on ABC or Fox. And the show was terrible, but he was hilarious in it. <laughs> he played the kind of nut job, pointy-haired boss type. And he was just funny. But he, but I, I really like these characters. And, you know, Anthony Edwards mm-hmm. is, of course, pushing, you know, we, we need to have we need to have a more well-rounded, and like you were saying, Charles Rocket's like, nope, we want smart people because that makes us a better college. And that kind of dovetails into the odyssey of Marlon Brown. Yeah, let's talk about Marlon. (laughs) Um, One of the best running gags of this movie is that you have these SAT questions with A and B. B. A A is played by Bruce Wagner. B is played by Tom Kenny. Who is SpongeBob SquarePants? SquarePants, who who I recognized from at the time before SpongeBob from a sketch show on Fox called The Edge, which had you may or may not have seen it. It had Wayne Knight, Julie Brown. Julie Brown was the not downtown Julie Brown, but the, the white Julie yes. Brown was was the um, was the sort of supposed comedic lead, and it had a very young pre-friends Jennifer Aniston. I must have uh, it lasted show it lasted all of a season or half a season it was on around the same time as the Ben Stiller show which got way more um kudos well deserved kudos I have that show on DVD and it's still hilarious uh but yeah it was this weird show called The Edge it was a it was one of like two or three sketch shows that Fox was trying to put out in the very very early 90s um it was one of the ones that didn't take well, it, it, yeah. it's funny because he's he's a huge. I mean, in addition to doing SpongeBob SquarePants, he's got this long resume of voice. Oh, yeah, voice acting. And I remember a couple back in two thousand two, he was in this film called Comic Book the Movie uh, that mm-hmm. Mark Hamill Hammer. directed and all that. And yeah. then you know that's I, a good movie. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I own it on DVD. Um, and then a couple years after, you know, I've watched that film a thousand times. I rewatched this film, and I'm like, holy shit, it's him! <laughs> what the hell is he doing in this film? But it's just and you. Go ahead. Honestly, and you notice that the A and B bit, which is probably the most memorable bit from the movie, the questions get more and more sadistic as the movie goes yes. on. Because at first they're running a race. Then they're jumping from an airplane. Then they're in a boat in shark-infested waters. At the end, they're trapped in the mailbox with dynamite strapped. I mean, it's just but they're like... also the, uh, the, the, the cop and the guy that, while well, well, yeah. uh, Marlon and... Marlon and Jessica. Jessica are driving. He they they, they basically get, get him pulled over, and it's just like you asshole. Which is one of those. It's the one. It's the one time in the movie where he fought, where they solve a math equation. <laughs> he gets the question right. I, 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 that just dawned on me. It's the only time in the entire movie where he gets one of those questions right. But uh, he confidently answers it. <laughs> we'll slow it, down. But Marlon, the reason why I like Marlon is Marlon was me. He was a guy that had a brain in his head, but didn't do very well in school because he never applied himself. Uh, he's got a father and a very, 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 very hot stepmother played by Diane Franklin. <laughs> Diane Franklin. Um, and who've got a kid, and, and the kid, they're trying to make the kid a genius, and Marlon's just like, he's kind of a screw-up. Uh, yeah. Not a bad guy, but, you know, she and, and he's a comic book fan, which is another reason why I uh, mm-hmm. I kind of related to him. He, he He's yeah. apparently a fan of the Silver Surfer, which, nothing wrong with that. 
But he goes through this whole process. You know, they take you through, you know, taking the SATs and then having to take the SATs again and then Mm -hmm. filling out the forms. And they have this great, like, couple of bits with Nora Dunn and Phil Hartman as these complete scam artists uh, of people who are, like, advising him on what to do to get into college. And that's back when you could get somebody from Saturday Night Live in a movie cheap because nobody from Saturday Night Live was making movies in the late 80s. Like, nope. like, like Kristen Wiig and Andy Samberg and these people. Like, that's No, it really wouldn't now. be until uh, Wayne's World. Wayne's World, yeah. Where those guys and, but really started to try to break loose. They're so smarmy in this movie. Yes. But so dead on. I love the fact that there's like he's sitting there smoking a cigarette. She's not doing anything. Marlon walks in and suddenly they're pretending to be on the phone. Be on the phone. I got I got my line. Can you please hold? Can you please hold? I got a very important customer. Hey, and then and then she's like, you know, do you have the money? Yeah, <laughs> like, that'll be a hundred dollars. And then the whole honesty of going to Ramsey for the mm-hmm. f- for the or you know the visit, which you know, yeah, it's like one of those things where if you went to college, which you know I never graduated from college, but I did go to college. All of these things I can completely and utterly relate to, and. It- and Marlon's entire purpose is just to be with this girl, and I love Anthony Edwards' reaction to that. It's like this is he's like there. First, he's like there's worse reasons to go to college, and then he's to pick a college, and he says finally he's like, you know what, love's a fucking noble emotion, and he's like, you go for it. But yeah. you, I think his advice is like, you focus on you. We'll get Jessica Kalo into yeah. the, the college, and and the um. I always found it funny that Ramsey's located in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I know you're from Pennsylvania, yes. but and I know you you probably went to a college fair when you were in high school. No, I didn't. But it's it's like think of it's it's like a job fair, or think of the dealer floor at your average yeah small to medium sized comic convention where it's just table, oh, a couple of guys behind this a is counter. One of the best scenes in the entire film, and it's brochures yeah and that's basically what it is and what, what was funny about Ramsey being in Pennsylvania is that I'm not I'm not kidding man the majority of the schools for, at those college fairs seem to be in the Lehigh Valley <laughs> <laughs> well, like, well that's why Ramsey felt a lot very familiar because yeah. my, my, my eldest sister went to Slippery Rock University which is on the western side of the of- state and, a couple of girls had Slippery Rock sweatshirts when we were in college and, when we were in high school and really and truly, the look of Ramsey is the look of Slippery Rock, you know, with the trees and it's this, you know, yeah. beautifully, you know, beautiful campus and everything. Um, but it's just this, the college fair that they go to. Oh, my God. Where there's the band that's constantly coming up to them and they're like yelling. But the best part of the college fair scene is not the military guy suddenly yelling at them. And it's college is for buzzards. And it's not Anthony Edwards and, and, and his like nice yeah. little performance. And you get the sense that he's in love with Nina and she's in love yeah. with him, but she's like with Charles rocket, but she sucked with Anthony Edwards already. So yeah, it's, like it's really weird. It, it's Curtis Armstrong, <laughs> Curtis Armstrong it, coming up as the, the representative of the Bible college. Arcadia Bible God. And he, he goes, Last night, Jesus Christ came to me on a flaming pie. And he told me, What's your name? Marlon. Marlon! He sells this role 
in such a way that he almost walks away with the entire <laughs> Son, Jesus loves you. Is he it? wouldn't if he saw my SAT scores. They're low. <laughs> good luck. Just pats him on yeah, the back. Good luck. And then he goes, he goes, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the Lone Star thing, you know, roping him in and the band that's constantly messing with oh, him, like no. I said. But, it... but just Curtis Armstrong in his five minutes in this entire film, not even five minutes, it's like a two-minute bit, is just like, oh my god, this is what I'm taking away from this film. And he's wearing Boss Hogg's suit. Yes. Now, when they are at the college, though, all the things that the kids do, I can totally relate to. Everything about that experience is just like them hanging out at the restaurant and, you know, her going, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, them being these these weird collection of humanity all thrown together. Yeah. It's just, it just, it's what makes the film. Now, like every Savage Steve Holland film, it kind of falls apart at the end. Yeah, where they have to, because they have to resolve the plot. Yeah, so they put a little drama in that Jessica Marlin sent off his tape. Jessica never put in an application, so she they drive to Ramsey with in 1989. She has a laptop computer and a printer in the car. So that's a rich family. Yeah, yeah, and then um, and and then uh, so they they break into the admissions office, and uh, she eventually um, she on the way home she kisses him when they pull up to, you know, so she kind of falls for him. And then with the, the real drama comes between um, Kip and Leo because Kip basically quits over the fact that everybody is kind of on Leo's side yeah. with this numbers thing. And then they, then they, uh, they show, he shows Nina Marlin's video, which is brilliant by the way. Yes. Cause Marlin um, is taking the advice of these two shysters uh, like does all these like extracurricular activities. Like he wrestles this large woman, uh, which is that sound as he repeats it and he's juggling and he's doing, he's like doing a daycare thing. And it's this totally yeah. endearing uh, video. And, and, and the most telling is when he's filming his parents and Diane Franklin goes, and we really need the room. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow, you are a heartless stepmother, aren't you? <laughs> and again, I, probably not want you for my stepmom because that would she make has, me very uncomfortable <laughs> but she has she has great comedic timing in the movie mm-hmm. oh yeah like it's it's she plays that role so well it's almost like you kind of wish that was more of a character but it's like she she she's done a lot of short films and things which since she's returned to acting because her daughter has been making films and what have you but I almost wish she'd been in more comedies and things like this because it um, she's actually a really good actress, and I will tell you that there are a number of people who probably saw this movie and went, "Wait, she's not French." Yeah, exactly. Unless they unless they'd seen the Last American Virgin, um, which is a odd movie. His dad, the guy that plays his dad, Richard Jenkins, is a total that mm-hmm. guy though. He's just like a, yes, it's just like all these little films and television mm-hmm. roles, and it's just like. You know, he was in Wolf for crying out loud, and then you know, One Night at McCool's, and yeah, just like all these, like, just uh, really, I Heart Huckabee. Oh God! But like, it, it's I know, it's that that him kept showing Nina the the video, and her kind of realizing, you know, hey, and she's pissed at Leo anyway because Leo had talked her up on Vera, the black girl, and, and then sandbagged her. So they trick Leo into admitting Leonard Edward Funt. Yes. Or 
elephant. <laughs> it's not a. That's a pachyderm. <laughs> and, and 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 the end. Um, the chancellor of the college, you know, they don't fire. I don't know if Leo gets fired or what, but I know that Kip gets the dean of admissions job, and Marlon gets in. Jessica gets in. Well, Jessica had already gotten in. Um, Vera gets in. Uh, and Ronnie you know, Sherhan William. <laughs> Ronnie okay. Sherhan's Paul. Yeah, he gets in, and uh, you know, and, and so all all is and, and Oliver goes off with the with the game show. But you're right. It's it's sort of again with every Savage Steve Holland movie, even the one he didn't write. There's a montage about two thirds to three quarters of the way through that it doesn't kill the movie, but it definitely it slows down the 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 pacing kind of. And, and it's always like this song that gets in your head and doesn't want to leave. Uh, I mean, it just... Uh, yeah. You'll be singing it tomorrow. And it's just, and you know, like people, you know, like off. people filling out and, and, and Vera working at the McDonald's and all that. Thank you, McDonald's, mm-hmm. for paying for a portion of this film, by the way. <laughs> we really do there's appreciate a, it. There's also a lot of pro- product placement in Better Off Dead, by the way. <laughs> it's 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 just, I mean, it's everyday household stuff, but it's like, holy shit, there's a lot of Diet Coke cans in this movie. But but the great thing, how you know this is a Savage Steve Holland, at least directed film, is like even, mm-hmm. even in the scene where Nina goes to see... Uh, see Vera and Vera's mother just says something like you know I pay attention to my thing it's just like and it's not it's like her child is doing something like her younger child I don't want to tell my child that I I, they can't do something and the kid's like on the carousel yeah and she's like don't do that (laughs) so it's just these, these little quirks but really you know for what it's worth this is my favorite of his films it really is. I, I think I think it's the mo- uh, directorially it's the most polished. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, and I think be- not not because he didn't write it, because I'm sure he kind of went through the script and did you know made some changes as most directors yeah. will do. You can tell where he did too. But I, I think the fact that you had two plots made the movie mm-hmm. gave more for the film because then you're following two different characters. So what? Marlon's story and Jessica's story wouldn't really fill up an entire movie, so you have this other little drama going on, and it's just it's it's a more in depth film. Yeah, and, and whereas Better Off Dead, which for me edges this out slightly, is an '80s film, and it looks like an '80s film, and it feels like an '80s film, and you love that at about it's like Sixteen Candles. Yes, Sixteen Candles and Better Off Dead are both films that you love the fact. That they're the '80s. How I Got in College does not look dated. It's an '80s film that, I mean, there's things about it, some of the fashion, what have you, is like clearly this is the '80s. But for some reason, it does not. It's almost like The Breakfast Club, where it does not, or say anything, where it doesn't look that dated, you know. And I think part of it is that the fact that 
there's it's more complex than the other two. So apparently the two girls that played the twins, uh, Emily and Sarah Munson, this was the only film they ever did. <laughs> it's kind of weird. There, there, there's a good bit with them at the end, too, because one of them gets in and one of them doesn't, but it turns out that they screwed up which twin played which instrument. Instrument, yeah. Uh, and... So I really like that. And I like the fact that the, the rich kid, which they really don't do anything with. Uh, but, but you know who plays his father? Blair Warner's father from the Facts of Life. <laughs> That's hilarious. I for, I completely forgot about that. Oh yeah, Doctor Philanek. Jelinek. Jelinek. Yeah, yeah. Because he's because he's the and, legacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's the legacy. So, which again, did you notice in this movie? There's a lot of great use of the word shit. Yes. That sort of excellent shit, and they, they do it so well. The thing that I noticed about the scene you were talking about with the, with the girl's mother and the carousel and the McDonald's, and it's such a small scene. Yeah. It's the fact that that's so quick that there's no long setup to the joke. Yeah, it just that happens. Makes it, it just happens. It's, it's right away, and it's, it's like, again, it, there's a lot of great timing in, in, in some of these movies, especially in this one, where he doesn't take, he doesn't telegraph a lot of his jokes. Um, which I appreciate that I appreciate that because I don't like feel, I know you don't like feeling insulted when it comes to comedy. Yeah, you know, not at all. Some yeah, some jokes work well when telegraphed. You know, mm-hmm. when Kate when Caitlin Bree goes into the back of the quick stop, and I turn to my sister, who was watching this movie with me, and I said, "That guy never came out of the bathroom." And then the body bags on him. A few moments later, she fucked the dead guy in the back of the quick stop. Yeah, exactly. We're on the floor. That's telegraphing a joke and doing it very well, you know, Kevin Smith. But, like, lingering on the camera long enough for you to realize that, like, you know, or the classic bit about, hey, there's a pool, and there's a guy walking by the pool. Who wants to place a bet that he's not going to fall into the pool at some point? Yeah, I mean, it's just... The mix of physical comedy with yeah. with you know and, and 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 going beyond just like the the physical comedy of uh like the A and B stuff which is yeah like really kind of weird and funny at times too just but it all happens in his head and I think that's the other thing that makes this so great uh, a, a lot of the absurdity the weirdness and what have you happens in a lot of the characters heads as opposed to right in front of them with with a few exceptions but also to the physical comedy of the of the college fair which has mm-hmm. a lot of good bits in it but also just the delivery of the actors it's it's like Savage yeah. Pollen got so much out of his cast and their mm-hmm. way and Laura Flynn Boyle is not an actress that I normally like to see in films She's very annoying. Uh, but in this film, she's very endearing because I buy into... Yeah. It's kind of like Freddie Prinze Jr. and she's all that. Yeah. He could have been a complete douchebag in that entire film, but the fact that they threw in the subplot where he was having problems with his dad and the whole hacky mm-hmm. sack thing at mm-hmm. the at the, the little stage thing that she's a part of made me like him as a character, yeah. so I bought into what was going on. Another movie, another person who does that well in another movie, and I, I will preface this by saying I've seen this movie twice because of the fact that I teach Twelfth Night to sophomores. Channing Tatum in She's the Man. The Amanda Bynes movie. It's, it's Twelfth Night by Shakespeare. 
Now, he flashes blue steel the entire movie because he has one facial expression. Seriously. He's, nice. but, I like but your, he's at, I, I approve of your use of the blue steel, by the way. But, I've never seen he, the film, but I approve. But he's good in it because he's kind of playing... He plays um, Orsino, and, or, the, or the, the equivalent of Orsino, and he is this kind of cocky guy who's also kind of unsure of himself. And so the, in the same kind of way where... He could have been a total D bag, but he is endearing in the film. You know, um, and, and even when she's kind of her and her friends are kind of poking fun at Marlin, mm-hmm. they're also hanging out with them. So you get the sense that it felt real to me because that that's what high school was. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't like you know one of the films you covered on one of your earlier uh, shows, "Can't Buy Me Love," where there was like yeah. the jarks, the shark, the jarks, and the jets the sharks and the jets but it was more like there were all these people they had their own cliques and people moved in and out but there was no clear like he's a dork we're gonna make fun of him yeah that was in my experience that was junior high Mm -hmm. and once we all got to high school and it was by it was by virtue of the fact that a lot of us were tracked so i ended up taking classes with the same core group of about 20 or 30 people and then I had my class was about 250 people. But, like, I remember the the girl I had a crush on in the ninth grade and wound up having kind of a crush on for most of high school. Yet, it's, it's a long story. Long story short, she was in... I had her schedule memorized, not by the not because I was stalking her, but by virtue of the fact that out of eight classes a day, I was in, like, four or five of them because we were both in, you know, honors this or what have you. And you had this... You're right. You had this kind of mixing of clicks I guess you could say and some people gave each other a hard time and I'm sure that there were people who you know but you know I went through a lot of shit too but at the same time I was friends with people who you know were the go get drunk in the woods yeah. every Friday Saturday night and you get laid and what have you crowd and here I am sitting at home on a Friday night if I'm not over at my friend's place playing Genesis you know or watching a, a uh, I'm watching movies, like how I got into college. <laughs> well, the thing is, <laughs> you know? it's, it's it's like especially after the tenth grade, where I, you know, not to you know use this as therapy, but you know, tenth <laughs> grade was the last time I had a, a real problem with anybody in my high school. It was this guy, mm-hmm. this jackass in my swim class that uh, I won't go into where I how I got my revenge because I never really got revenge technically but something about him and something Uh i knew about him made me the winner in that situation um but after that you know it was more like everyone kind of left each other alone but the weird thing was in my senior year i took speech because i wanted an easy a uh which by the way i got an easy a Uh, mine was creative writing yeah um I sat next to the captain of the football team. Mm-hmm. And he thought I was funny. And because I, I did these bizarre speeches. And, he, and, and one day he, he, I get done and he hits, you know, like, you know, te- you know, gives me a little love tap on the arm. He goes, man, you're funny. You're really funny. And suddenly football players started saying hi to me in the halls. And all I could imagine is that basically they had a weekly meeting. Uh,. <laughs> Where they decided who was going to be picked on and who wasn't going to be. And at one point, Andy, the, the captain of the football team, said, Oh, guys, by the way, we're moving Mike to the guy we say hi to in the hall. We don't invite him to the parties. 
but we will recognize his existence and not pick on him. Okay. And everyone, you know, marked it in their little book. And suddenly I'm getting said hi to in the hall. It's the only thing I can come up with. It was, no, there was, it, you find your niche and things kind of even out. And and I do remember one time this, this girl who I'm still friends with, um, I'm walking home from school and she's driving by and she she's like, hey, you want to ride? I was like, okay. Like, and it was just like this, again, what is this girl who's popular at giving me a ride home from school? Okay. The hilarious thing was I was two blocks away from my house, so I was like, "I'm two blocks." I said, "I'm just down." The-. She's like, "Wow, you're two. I, I I told you I was two blocks away, but you're right. It's just this sort of." And getting back to the movie, um, you ha- there is that sense that that you're right. They're they're making fun of him. And they're kind of giving him a hard time in a very cute sort of way. Yeah, it's like do, the- does, does Marlon Brown have a shot? And they're like, "No," but yeah, at but- the end of the film, they're all hanging out after yeah. the second SATs. So it's just like, it felt real to me, if that makes any yeah. sense. Because, well, you're right, because they went through it together. Yeah. Because Jessica didn't have to take the SATs, but the other two girls did. Um, so there's that sense of camaraderie that develops when you're going through something, like you're in the same driver ed car. Yeah, something, something like that. Like I mean, that. it's just, because that's what high school was. I mean, yeah. I, I think the main thing about high school is that I never really got picked on. Uh, I mean, I got picked on, but it was never like I was never shoved into a locker. No one ever beat my ass. Uh, I never got into a fight because I walked away from every fight I could have gotten into. And then especially in my senior year, because I was going through kind of a really rough time at home because my mother was very sick. Uh, at one point, the gym, co- the, the, the gym coach uh, comes up to me, goes, Mike, you know, your, your, your guidance counselor told me what was going. I don't know why Dan DiDio was my gym coach, but we'll go for this. Uh, Mike, uh, your, mom, your, your, your guidance counselor told me about your mom. If you need anything, anything at all, you tell me, okay? And you, anybody giving you a hard time, you let me know. And I'm like, why did Steven Seagal suddenly become my gym teacher? Because I had this image. Like, in my head, if they ever make a movie of my life, I want somebody about to pick on me. But then he, like, Steven Seagal line repels from the ceiling and kicks their asses, you know, using Aikido. Because that was his thing. So, I mean, these are the things that I think about when I'm sitting at home and the power goes out, to quote George Carlin. Um, you, you know that you probably had it last week? Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah, don't worry about it. it. <laughs> it's like, call, it's call, like Tony Soprano is my gym coach. I, call, I, made, I made a few phone calls. It's <laughs> taken care of. But it, but, I'll but call it, you when I need a favor. And I think, again, that's why this film sticks with me because maybe yeah. it was the fact that he was working from somebody else's script. Which I think sometimes as a director probably challenges you. Because mm-hmm. you're not working specifically with your material. You are working with material that yeah. is given to you that you are adapting to your own, you yeah. know, peculiar, you know, idiosyncrasies as a filmmaker. But somebody else laid out a story for And you can avoid kind of the self-indulgence mm-hmm. that can come along with being both writer and director. Because especially after you've had one or two of those under your belt, um, no matter what the success. I mean, you look at somebody like like Kevin Smith, for instance. Um, he's got, out of his first five movies, he's got Clerks, which is the, we're flying by the seat of our pants here film. Marats is the one the studio completely fucked with, even though it really... It's it's a great it's a great movie. It's just 
you know, it's obviously like, you know, it, it's not it's not literary film. In no, not at all. Chasing Amy is probably his best written movie. Yes. And then you have Dogma, which... It's his first superhero film. It's the first, and I will always give him credit for having the balls to make the movie because that's a, that was a hard movie to pull off. Oh, yeah, definitely. Story and effects and what have you. But then you have basically you have Jane and Silent Bob Strike Back, which I cannot watch because <laughs> it's so self-indulgent. It's deliberately self-indulgent, but it falls flat. It, it, it has. I, I actually ways. really like the film, in all honesty. See, um, I, I liked it when I first saw it, and I saw it on a rewatch. I could barely get through it, and I'm, try, I'm not trying to like piss all over the film because it's not terrible. Zack and Mary Make a Porno is a terrible film. <laughs> but... And Clerks 2 is actually better than people give it credit for. I'd really like to see Savage Steve Holland take another crack at this type of movie today. I don't I think too. he could because, you know, you would have to have the unrated cut. Because uh, that's that's how comedies yeah. work these days. Because comedies, I, I think the last movie that was a comedy that I sat down, watched, and laughed at was Beer Fest. Uh, I still haven't seen it. My brother-in-law says it's a hilarious movie. I... But that's because I, Beer Fest feels like this yeah. type of film. You know what? The last movie to, to come out like this was that is weird and it's funny and my wife and I quote it endlessly. It's rated R because of language. It's Wet Hot American Summer. Which, which I have yet to never, see. But uh, it's, uh, it's everybody from recommended it to me. So. It's everybody from the state. Okay, and and uh, and making the movie the state making movie about it's it's a, which is basically a meatballs parody, and <laughs> Nothing it's wrong with very that. very funny. But yeah, but basically, and the two of us rented it because we both love the state. Um, both of us have a connection, an odd connection with Ken Marino, because she wrote Ken Marino a fan letter back in the early nineties, and he wrote her back. Oh wow! And I went to high school with her cousin, with his cousin. <laughs> Um, so she, her, his cousin interviewed him for our school paper <laughs> my senior year because the state was like huge in my high school. Uh, like I, I'd go to I my friend's houses episode. and watch the state. Yeah, we, we, we would walk around doing the Barry and Levon $240 worth of pudding bit and we'd also walk around going, oh, I want to dip my balls in it. <laughs> but Wet Hot American Summer is really worth watching. But yeah, it's one of those movies where the first time around you might not get everything you watch it two or three times and like this movie is hilariously brilliant so but anyways i yeah anyway <laughs> i i think savage steve holland is a is a very good comedic filmmaker and like i said i i cannot tell you the influence he has on me comedically of what my comedic sensibilities are uh in in the few times that i have pie in the sky dreamed of doing comedic films in all of the bits I've ever come up with, you can see kind of little fingerprints of Savage Steve Holland. And, and, and the references I make on my podcasts will mm-hmm. sometimes be really esoteric references to these films. And, you know, it, like I said, it's Savage Steve Holland, the Zucker Brothers, and Dennis Miller. And I'd, I would definitely... I'm kind of in the same boat where I, I think were, had I been writing... Had I been any good at comedy writing... It would be one-off gag after one-off gag after one-off gag, and maybe a running bit that has nothing to do with the rest of the plot, but I think it's funny to have a running bit where this happens, to, like a running bit about a paper boy. Yeah. 
which, by the way, the scene where he where he's walking home from the dance and he gets chased by multiple paper boys, slides over the coat of his car and goes, Keys! <laughs> Again, it's brilliant. Especially with the way the like, camera goes in on yeah. him. It's just... It, it, it's really... It's why I can't be hard on that film because it's where he's trying to... No. Like I said, it, it, like it was, I said a bunch of times, it's where he's trying to figure things out. One Crazy mm-hmm. Summer, he's still kind of learning. And I think by how I got into college, he pretty much had his style refined to yeah. where you could have, you know, I never want to tell my kids that they can't do something. Stop that. And it's just, boom, it's done, it's out there, it's a funny little bit, and it doesn't really impact on the scene, and it really deflates the fact that that mother is being a huge bitch. <laughs> I know. I would have liked to see what he could have done, though, in the late 90s, perhaps, mm-hmm. or even in the last decade, with a with a, with a a PG-13 comedy, with a Michael Sarah or or... Or there, I keep trying to figure out an actor who's a modern day equivalent of a John Cusack as a teenager, and there aren't very many. And I wouldn't but even like, say what, Michael Sarah is because Michael Sarah, no, plays, he's not. He plays the same character in every movie he's yeah. in, and it annoys the out of me. I always think that that's they would have either gone one way or the other with a, if they were to ever remake, say anything, they'd cast him, or they would have cast like a Zac Efron or somebody who's too pretty for the role. I mean, to be perhaps to be fair, even though I've never seen the film, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist feels like a, a a Savage Steve Holland setup for a movie. I'd have to see that. I haven't I haven't seen that yet. I had to but, see the trailer a thousand yeah. times at work because at one point at work they they gave us this like DVD full of trailers of movies we were selling because an office supply store needs to sell DVDs. And uh I would watch like it was like the Paul Blart Mall Cop uh, trailer and the Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist and Lawrence mm-hmm. of Arabia. It's also, by the way, quick aside, where I decided that if I if I can't make it as a you know person working in in retail, that I will offer my services to be the guy that plays the uh, Kevin James characters and the directed DVD sequels that they don't want to get Kevin James for. That's I no no seriously. I think I could actually make a career out of that. I mean, like like being you know in Paul Blart two, you know, or in being you know. Here comes the boom too, or the zookeeper too. You know, they'd be crap films, but I'd make money. I'm, I'm, and I want to be the one who writes, wants to write the one movie where all my friends are in the movie. <laughs> and then, and I want to write, I want to write an incontinuity sequel to some piece of shit movie that actually works. You know, like like Megaforce or something. You know, just like deeds not words, sir. Deeds not words. Yeah, exactly. All right, so um, it is one in the morning. I apologize, <laughs> I sir. My wife from the cash. No, it's okay. It's okay. I, I, I plan. I plan for this. Um, but thank you, thank you for coming on. Um, this, this was something we had talked about almost a year ago when, uh, when I was on your podcast, mm-hmm. uh, and we had talked about it a little bit. I don't think it even made made the cut. We were just talking in the beginning of the episode, and uh, I'm so glad we got to do this because yes. I. This, the the if there's kind of an influential filmmaker on in my life who's not George Lucas or Steven Spielberg, you have John Hughes and you have Savage Steve Holland, and you're one of like I said you're one of the few people who would who could talk to that you know, talk with me about that because it's just like <laughs> we had because no, nobody's gonna be like people would be like oh yeah John Hughes everybody's 
who the fuck, you know, like, you're better off dead and you would have you, and, and, you know, there are other people, like, you know, I love Cameron Crowe's movies, for instance, and what and whatnot, but, but Savage Steve Holland, you know, um, it has a real special place, uh, for me as a, as a movie, movie fan, um, he's, he's what, he kind of what is got, got me off of action, he didn't, I've never been completely off of action movies, but this was the first time I started us outside of, say, Mel Brooks, or the Zucker Brothers, where I started watching more and more different comedies and different types of movies because of movies like Better Off Dead and One Crazy Summer and, and, and How I Got Into College. And I will still watch them and love them to this day. Uh, so thank you. Thank you once again. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody where they can find you and then uh, we'll um, take it out. There, there's a bunch of, uh, uh, there's a couple different places. I, I, I found that podcasts are like tattoos. Once you get one, you really want to do another. Uh, and and I see you have fallen into that trap as well. So Damn you, Billy! <laughs> I learned it. I it's because of you. I learned it by watching you. Um, that's really weird to hear. By the way, because it's not the first time that I've heard that. It's also a tonight. running bit in my life. Yes. I, oh, tonight. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, my main podcast. Uh, well, I actually have two main podcasts. There's Views from the Long Box, which. Uh, is my attempt to reconcile a, a debilitating personality defect uh, into something that entertains others and makes them laugh. Uh, it's basically, uh, this year I've been focusing on Superman's 75th anniversary in a series that I call Superman at 75, uh, The Celebration of a Legend, which is a takeoff of a title of a book that came out during Superman's 50th anniversary. Uh, and that's it, it, but mostly it's me picking a series or something and talking about it and not only talking about it, but talking about what it means to me. Uh, you know, I I think anybody could sit there and talk about, you know, maximum carnage, which I will never do. Uh, but you know, I, I think it adds something when the person tells you why that story means something to them and where they were, which is why I love listening to your shows. Because yeah, I think you do that very well. I think you do it better than I do, as a matter of fact. You and I have the same whack ass memory. Yeah. <laughs> where 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 we will watch a movie or we will see a TV show. I will look at a. I'm, I'm staring at a board game right now. I will look at a board game and I will remember where I was, what I was doing, who I was with. Yet for some reason, I have to put my car keys in the same place every night, or else <laughs> I'm going to lose them. Um, but views from the long box can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. If you like this sort of thing where people go through their history, I do recommend checking out episodes 87 to 99. Uh, oh, go, those are amazing. Where I go for like the first 13 years of my collecting comics and all that and kind of get raw in a way that a lot of podcasters may not. Uh, and I feel bad for putting Shag through 1993 because of what happened in that year. Um, there, there's also, uh, from crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast, which I think if you had to compare the two is the better known show. Uh, it, it can be found at the Superman homepage and at the Superman podcast network, Jeffrey Taylor and I, uh, Jeffrey Taylor writer for movies.com and like me, a writer for the Superman homepage. We basic, uh, I basically got the idea of going through in an index style, uh, every issue of the post crisis Superman, uh, Jeffrey came along for the ride and surprisingly, people seem to like it. Uh, I think it touches a nerve in a certain segment of fandom uh, that, you know, that is their Superman or, you know, because and especially when we did the Death and Return, I think we got a, I think we got a whole new audience then because that's hmm. the storyline that most people remember from that era. So uh, and boy, did we do an exhaustive look at that <laughs> that yes, event. Oh, my it, God. It, it was 
It was great. It was it was really really great. We ran the gauntlet, and on the other yes. side, we're like, oh my god, I'm glad we don't don't have to talk about a novel every episode now. But you can find that at, at Superman homepage and the Superman Podcast Network. I am also a very proud member of the Two True Freaks crew. This mm-hmm. has grown exponentially over the last couple of years. Yeah, uh, I like to think of myself as one of the first guys they brought on because Scott and I started out by doing Tales of the JSA, which may or may not be coming out back. Uh, we're working on that. Um, but then he invited me to be on Back to the Bins, which I'm not so much on anymore because Paul and Bill have come onto that show and I think really done a great job with it to the point where I think they're doing a good enough job that if I come back, I think I'll be impacting it negatively. But I'm also on Comics Monthly Monday every month where uh, usually Scott, Chris, uh, Paul Spataro, and now Bill Robinson and I um, uh, just sit there and we, we, we have a couple different segments, but those can all be found at www.2truefreaks.com. I'm also on Pad Smash, which is a show I that uh, I do with uh, the man who came up with the show was J. David Weeder. He brought in Lee Busby, and then I came on the show. We are looking at the Peter David uh, uh, run of The Incredible Hulk, which you can find at IncredibleHulkHomepage.com. And if you want to hear me live, where I'm not as comfortable, let me tell you, I get back to it when I can edit myself. Uh, every Monday night at 11.30 Eastern Standard Time at the Superman homepage. You can listen to Radio KAL Live. Steve Eunice put out a call wondering if anybody could help him get a live show going. I answered it, and we've been at this ever since. We've gotten to talk to some amazing people, and let me tell you folks, go back and listen to the Jeff East episode. Uh, Hmm. Because we had Jeff East, who played the young Clark Kent Superman the movie, and he was drunk. I'll have to go back and listen to that. <laughs> it is, um, it, 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 it was one of the first times because because I've I've done this podcasting thing for about six years now. Okay, so I've gone through I've gone through like uncomfortable guests, and I've gone through you know episodes that I just wasn't feel. I have never gone had an experience co-hosting a show where the host and I are on different continents, and yet I know we both have the same expression on our faces. <laughs> so check all those out. Thank you so much for having me. Pop hey. Your Affidavit is one of my favorite shows. Thank you very much. I, I really, I, I, this, this is, um, I think more than the other two, this is really a labor of, of love, and, and I really, really enjoy putting this together. So I, I really appreciate that, all that. Um, for you listeners out there, next time I actually have an episode prepared. Usually I don't. Uh, next time I'm going to be introducing a, an occasional feature on this podcast called commentaries for things that don't need commentaries. <laughs> and I will be looking, I will be looking at, uh, one of the most important movies to be released in the summer of 1989, the blistering social commentary and satire of the class struggle that is Weekend at Bernie's. So, I'm not kidding. I did a commentary for Weekend at Bernie's. One of Andrew McCarthy's best films. <laughs> the best scene of which happens in the very beginning of yes, the movie where they the get mugger. held up. <laughs> the mugger. It's you too can turn it off right there. It's too... <laughs> you can turn it off right there. But yeah, so come back in two weeks for Weekend at Bernie's. Um, thank you once again. And if we're going to end a Savage Steve Holland podcast, we have to end it a proper way by saying... The podcast's over. You can go now. (laughs) It's not like I've been mean to you.
You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness. I will probably put that in either that or the like to get you to know you well by Howard Jones. Or if I would have wings, I could do it. I was singing that on the way home yesterday, and I'm just That's like, why in the hell am I singing this song? Because that song gets stuck in your head. Yeah. The other one was the one from from How I Got into College. Yes. Uh, if we could be forever young, <clears throat> as my throat dies. <laughs>